everyone, and welcome to Literary Demerit, a podcast where we take a look at works of questionable literary merit. I'm Siobhan. And I'm Kester. Last week, we started our reading of Dirty Laundry, which is an incredibly, uh, well, actually, it's a, it's the first fic that we have ever tackled that is, uh, without a doubt, sincere. Yes, uh, so it's so far unique on this show. It's a little different than our standard. And in addition to being uh, sincere and uh, very bad, it's... Um, Alarmingly popular? <laughs> uh, people talk about how it's racist, people talk about how it's ableist, uh, but nobody talks about how it's really bad writing. And we want to kind of address <laughs> all of that, uh, because I see a lot of people complaining about it, but never before have I uh, heard uh, people, like, actually really dig into uh the writing and talk about why it's bad because it's it's awful yeah um i think maybe if you give this like a cursory read through um you might think this is like standard fan fiction prose because it's not like um as immediately egregious uh as something like my immortal um where there's just typos every other word um it's uh, written uh, like with passable spelling and grammar it's just uh it's still very very badly written i just think that uh there tends to be very little criticism of fan fiction writing beyond like spelling and grammar critiques people don't dig into like the prose being bad the interesting thing about this fic is that it's so bad but it's so bad in like so many different ways it's kind of fascinating and uh it's also like if you read the basic plot summary uh it doesn't actually seem like that uh bad but when you actually dig into the writing it's awful uh speaking of plot summaries would you like to give us uh the plot summary uh of what um we read this week okay so this is a pretty short one because this is uh the second half of part one is basically just a series of vignettes uh, but picking up from when Keith uh, took a nap, he is awakened by Greedo the Iguana crawling on top of him and licking his neck. Mateo then informs Keith he's been saying Lance's name in his sleep. Keith is embarrassed and doesn't want to confront the possibility that he might be crushing on Lance, let alone for Lance to find out, so he swears Mateo to secrecy. Keith and Lance decide to watch a movie together, but they wind up getting into an argument about which Star Wars movie is the best. The argument is finally settled when Keith puts on Back to the Future instead. Both boys are exhausted and wind up falling asleep on the couch together shortly after the movie starts. The following day, Keith and Lance spend the day babysitting the three little kids, Josie, Mateo, and Isabella, before family dinner that evening. This is when Keith starts to first get the impression that Lance's dad isn't too cool with his son dating a guy, although no one else in the family seems to have an issue, and Rosa in particular has acted accepting and supportive. After dinner, Keith and Lance are doing the dishes together when Lance puts on some music and starts dancing, eventually getting Keith to dance with him. We switch to Cleo's perspective here. She's watching the boys dance from the kitchen doorway. Not, neither of them notice her. She observes that Lance seems truly happy interacting with Keith, but is surprised when they don't kiss after seemingly coming very close to it during a slow dance. Cleo thinks this is odd, given that as far as she knows these two are dating, to her it looks more like they're crushing on each other than in a relationship. And she seems to want to solve this mystery, and that's where part one ends. Uh, so if you look at the basic plot summary, you might you might think, well, this is kind of boring, but 
you don't actually understand how bad it is until you go into reading it. Because right, it, it looks kind of dull, but you're not truly grasping, like... <laughs> I mean, should we just start with the thing with the iguana? Uh, well, I did some cursory research. I don't know anything about iguanas. Um, but, I mean, even before... Actually, before we get into the whole, like, uh conversation about iguanas uh because that's that's all one thing uh maybe we should talk about like how keith wakes up because this whole sequence is like highly implausible to me uh the the first thing the first sentence of of this whole thing is something strange nudged itself against keith's neck a tongue tracing against his hairline Mm mm-hmm what is this thing with the hairline? And the word hairline does appear a lot. It kind of does, right? Yeah, like, regardless of, like, how short or long someone's hair is, like, because if you were to take your hair and, and put it up, you would see <laughs> your, your, like, hairline, which is the part where the hair actually ends. But I don't really know what it means here for Keith, because, like, he has a mullet. And the tongue... Of the iguana. Like, I mean, obviously the iguana isn't, like, pulling his hair back. So how is it reaching his his hairline? Like, that's just not, not how I would phrase it. Okay, but I think it gets more confusing from there. Because uh, then the paragraph continues. Uh, a sensation of warm breath put his hairs on end. And in his state of sleep, Keith moved into the touch. A low groan sleep slipped from Keith's throat. And the tongue continued to slip against the goosebumps on his neck. So... The iguana has warm breath, uh, despite yeah. being cold-blooded, which is interesting. But uh, you get the setup here is that Keith feels someone touching his neck in his sleep. Uh, he feels the tongue, he feels breath, and he, in his like mostly asleep state, imagines that it's Lance, as we're about to see. I don't think this is plausible with an iguana. <laughs> I don't think you could mistake, like, an iguana crawling on you and licking you with its tongue, which is not even a thing, like, I think iguanas do. It's not, like, a dog. Mm -mm. But I don't buy that you could mistake an iguana touching you for a person. It would just not feel the same. It's a reptile. This is a sitcom joke, and it's like, yeah. okay, that's all well and good and cutesy and whatever but just like you said in the last episode this is trying to be a cutesy rom-com sitcom kind of deal uh and then it's also trying to be the secret life of bees so like right. where exactly does this fit in with the secret life of bees <laughs> but also i just don't think this scene works at all because it's an iguana it, you can yeah. do this trope like it's it's cheesy but you can do this trope with a dog yeah not with an iguana, not with a fucking lizard. It doesn't work like that. Like, you're not going to mistake, like, a scare a scaly, cold-blooded animal for, like, your not-boyfriend. It won't feel the same. <laughs> I don't buy it. Um, so, so uh, Keith feels the rough scale scraping his neck, and he uh, awakens. And here's like another humongous pet peeve about how the prose works: is like the uh, the narrator having a personality, but it not actually being established beforehand. We get a rhetorical question, which oh, is yeah. some of the most awful like ugh, parts about the the narration. Uh, and it's uh, and in bed with him? Question mark. Curling next to his back, long reptilian tongue hanging from its mouth, 
or uh, it is mouth, yeah. uh, was a three foot long iguana. Before we talk about how uh, that's fairly small for an iguana. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I think you could explain this a lot better than than I could. But with the narrator, and, and this brings me to my idea. The first thing I would change about this story is, uh, mm-hmm. well, obviously there's a huge um, perspective uh, issue. Um, sometimes it's in third person omniscient. Sometimes it's in third person limited and it switches between those in a way that makes nothing really that meaningful. Uh, if it were me, uh, and I was writing this story, I would have the story be told from first person perspective completely. Yes. Like um, the secret life of beasts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) like that's why the narration style works. And I guess we'll talk about that more in the second segment, what we're going to talk about the secret life of bees today. Um, but it doesn't work in third person limited and it absolutely does not work in third person omniscient. Oh yeah, no no way. Because the point uh, and uh, of the secret life of bees narration is that it's inherently uh, not not unreliable necessarily, but um not as objective as it would be if it were uh told from the standpoint of an adult who has the ability to uh like and perspective to see things as they are due to their experience but the protagonist in the secret life of bees is 14 so we don't really get that but here it's a 20 year old man who like yes although he is young um a 20 year old is an adult and uh keith in many points acts like a 14 year old yeah uh because he's he has to fulfill the same role as the character in secret life of bees i i mean we'll get into more of this when we talk about secret life of bees in our um closing segment today but uh <laughs> I-, I guess for now um i'd just say like i agree with that like the narrative style that this is attempting to do does not work for um third person narration the only way you could make it work is if you make the narrator a character um and that's not what this is doing uh to the extent the narrator is a character at all, the narrator is just the author telling you what to think of the story. Which is not fun, by the way. We don't like that. I, in Secret Life of Bees, the narration is basically like, I couldn't believe it. In in there, stand in there, was this. I had never <laughs> seen that in my life. And it reminded me of... And that works for, for a 14-year-old girl, but it doesn't work for... Um, a 20 year old man uh, especially since like it doesn't it doesn't work for a 20 year old man um, who is the protagonist of a story that's being told from third person limited and uh, well actually I think this is like pretty pretty easily like you could say this scene at least is uh, third person omniscient because it says a small puddle of saliva uh, stained the fabric but beneath his open mouth and in his dreaming state Keith continued to murmur incoherent words yeah we're like kind of from her perspective kind of not because we don't see that it's a lizard until he does but then we're kind of viewing the scene from the outside uh once he does realize it's a lizard it's it's confused and that makes it really hard um for the narration being his from his perspective to like uh mean anything about his character I mean normally when you have um a first-person narrator or even, like, third-person limited narration, um, that tells us something about the point-of-view character. Like, especially first-person narration, um, the way the character talks in narration uh, characterizes them. But even when you're in third-person limited, uh, you get insight 
into like the characters' thoughts and feelings and opinions about the story around them. Um, except that in here, in this story, because it's not consistently uh, limited to Keith's perspective, when we do get those kind of insights from the narration, I'm like, okay, is Keith thinking this? Is the narrator just like telling us objectively that this is what's going on? Like, it's not clear. Mm-hmm. God, we could complain about the narration forever, uh, and there's going to be, like, way more reasons for us to complain about it, so... W- one more thing, because I got completely sidetracked, is, okay. uh, well, well, I did say that I, I think this story should definitely be told from first-person perspective, but, uh, if, if we're, we're going even further, I would say, uh, tell this story in past tense, uh, first-person perspective, and, uh, the person you're telling the story to is, uh, the others at college, and every once in a while, we need to uh, get, like, a scene. And, and and this is, like, very cinematic, but I, I think it would work very well. And also have the other characters uh, in the show who are referenced briefly, but only to a way that's like, uh, oh, we filled our quota of referencing Voltron characters. Right, just so you know, it's a Voltron story. We can put put this in the other characters' tags on AO3. Yeah, Keith would, Keith would like, explain something, like, about what he did or what choice he made and and then it would like cut back to hunk going you did what right yeah and then um, like that would be the fun way to do this but it can't be that because it also has to be the secret life of bees for some reason right it's not taking advantage of the format it's set up cuz we even we even have the group chat which is then like barely used yeah if they were checking in with the group chat regularly that could uh that could like drive some suspense and character relationships like Imagine if Keith and Lance could uh, confide in the rest of the group about their, like, relationship bullshits. The story would benefit uh, greatly from, I think, having some sort of framing device, because the way it's told is messy. I mean, we have this countdown to Christmas, which we don't know the relevance of that, really, because uh, it's it's not like Christmas is an event the characters are looking forward to any more than one generally looks forward to christmas it's not like we know of anything that's going to happen on christmas except christmas so yeah it's like this meaningless countdown um it doesn't serve a purpose it's just kind of there right uh the story's like very weirdly paced and we'll see this like as it continues but it does a very bad job of like balancing the um the shipping aspect of the story with the part where it also has to be the secret life of bees. So like the found family stuff and the Keith and Lance stuff are kind of like two separate narratives in here. And often one will get focused on to the complete exclusion of the other. Like those two plot points don't really tie into each other coherently when they very easily could like for obvious reasons. Anyway, we still haven't complained about the fucking iguana. Um, the the iguana shows up okay and 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 keith's reaction to the iguana is like very like ew lizards what the heck is that um similar to how he was like i i I don't get the impression that keith likes animals which is well that's not actually the impression that i get from the show at all he doesn't really strike me as a ew i don't like animals kind of guy i mean he lives out in the middle of the desert uh he sees all sorts of different creatures all the time but okay if you want to make a change uh, to his character, that's fine, but this... I mean, in this, this is apparently, like, like, a city boy. Yeah, um... And he doesn't seem to have experience with pets, but it's just kind of a weird change, like, why? Yeah, and uh, maybe this is a nitpick, uh, but he says, like, we... It, 
it says uh, his pupils were dilated, which is um, not necessary to say because he was just asleep. So, yes, um, <laughs> they're probably going to be dilated. It's just like it's trying to write out the visual trope of a character being so surprised they like screech and shoot up in bed, which is what he does there. But you don't. <laughs> you don't write that kind of thing by just describing how it would look if this was a car- cartoon, which is what the story is doing. Anyway, uh, Mateo then enters um, to explain about the iguana. Mateo says that uh, the iguana's name is Greedo, and Keith yep. is, like, shocked that the name is Greedo, which is uh, weird. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why he has such a reaction to the lizard's name being Greedo, but um, for some reason he, like, dramatically repeats what Mateo just said. Mateo was crawling onto the bed with the iguana now, and he tugged at the strange blanket Keith was wrapped in. Since when had Keith been in a blanket? He didn't recognize the soft fabric or remember even falling asleep with it. Okay, it's not a strange blanket. We don't... Right. (laughs) There's nothing particularly strange about the blanket. Keith just wonders, huh, I don't remember putting a blanket on, on, um, on me. Someone else must have done it for me. Which is, like, the implication. It's like, yeah, I get that. It's cute, but... Do we actually, do we learn anything about, like, who put the blanket on him? Like, I would assume that Lance did. No, I was about to say, like, this is the one time it's not, like, over-explained, but we do have those extra two lines saying, which, uh, since when had Keith been in a blanket, he didn't recognize the soft fabric or remember ever falling asleep with it. Like, okay, I get it. Uh, Like, you can just say, Keith didn't remember going to sleep with a blanket, and we could get it. Yeah, I mean... You don't need to describe the blanket as strange, and we don't need the the sentence about he didn't recognize the soft fabric. We just... If it said, Mateo was crawling onto the bed with the iguana now, and he tugged at the blanket Keith was wrapped in, since when had Keith been in a blanket? You yeah. You just leave it there. Like, That's enough. It's enough. It's like... I know this, this is, like, nitpicky, but it, there's just so many instances of this where just cutting out a few words and a couple sentences here and there would, like, greatly improve... Uh, Keith squirms on the bed and shrieks and screams, uh, attempting to get as far away from the iguana as possible. Right, he's very scared of the iguana. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas Mateo is, like, completely calm and, uh, explaining to him about Greedo. Uh, Mateo's also, like, not really picking up on the cues that, uh, Keith is afraid. I guess we should maybe talk about, like, the way Mateo is interacting with this iguana because he 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 treats greedo like a stuffed animal like that's literally the comparison that the text makes the the iguana didn't seem to be moving anywhere just flicking it is ugly reptile eyes he's so judgmental um and then it says god why did the sanchez family have so many animals lance claimed they didn't live on on a farm but so far this felt like a bloody zoo a bloody zoo just inserting the word bloody into the narration. Um, <laughs> what year was this written? Uh, <laughs> this is definitely like, I read a lot of fanfics uh, with British characters with a lot of like Britishisms in them. Um, yeah. So I'm going to uh, like kind of pick up on it and insert the words into my fanfic, even if it doesn't like, where, where would Keith pick up on that? Why would he say something like bloody? Uh, Keith was in the BBC Sherlock fandom, (laughs) 
And never fully recovered. If if we are to believe that the narrator is, like, essentially from Keith's perspective, this doesn't make any sense because the narrator talks like Keith doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> he never uses the word bloody, uh... I mean, we're we're trying to analyze it so much, and it's really, it's so simple. It's, it's just that the author is writing the narration without any thought given to, like, uh, what it says about Keith's character, um, or what would Keith think about these things? What words would Keith use to describe the situation? They're just writing however they feel like, and if they happened uh, to watch a BBC show prior to writing this chapter the narration might drop a bloody all of a sudden. Uh, like, that's that's all it is, right? Like, there's there's nothing else that this could be. Keith is really, really very afraid of the iguana. Uh, he's extremely uh, afraid of the like, iguana. Like, he's, he's stuttering. He's like, G- get him away from me. Like, he's some sort of, like, Scooby-Doo character. Like, get him away from me. Okay, yeah, because, again, the thing here is, like, this is slapstick. This is slapstick. This would be funny if you saw it in a cartoon because he's having a very over-the-top reaction, uh, which at first is kind of believable because he wakes up, like, shocked and embarrassed to find that uh, there's actually an iguana, like, uh, licking his face in bed. But once he's woken up and fully assessed the situation, he's still fucking terrified of this iguana when it shows all indications of being, like, perfectly friendly. Bringing up what you said about, like, it, 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 he's treating the the creature like a stuffed animal. Yes. Like, it literally says here, Mateo reached for the iguana and pulled him into his lap. He treated the creature like a stuffed animal, but- That's what more, I said. It literally says it. With more care and compassion. Um, which is weird, because I would think that you'd think you treat a- I mean, little kids treat, um, stuffed animals, like- nicely a lot of the time well you know it really depends on the kid honestly some kids hit their stuffed animals so that doesn't really tell us anything but like regardless i would guess that he treats uh living things with more care and compassion than stuffed animals because um they're living things it's just like it's it's a very funny like confused comparison because on the one hand little kids often treat their stuffed animals with great kindness uh but in general if you use the phrase like uh, like a stuffed animal talking about how someone is treating a living animal, uh, that's shorthand for, like, mistreating them, treating them like an object instead of a living being. Yeah. But it says that he treated him like a stuffed animal, except with more care and compassion, which negates the usual meaning of treating something like a stuffed animal. What do you think of this? He'd stroke the reptile's head and hold him close to his chest, as if the iguana was a small kitten, except Greedo had scales, not fur, and was probably more than half the size of Mateo himself. His hair was like straw, only soft and nice (laughs) and not dry. Like, okay, I get it. You don't, you don't have to say like, as if the iguana were, were a kitten. Um, but just, just so, just so we, we, uh, make things clear here, um, Iguanas are not like kittens in that they don't have fur and they're larger, um, and they also have scales. It says he was more than half the size of Mateo himself? What? So the iguana's three feet long. Mateo is one and a half feet? He's five. What are you talking about? More than half the size of Mateo. So if the iguana's three feet long... That's more than half the size of Mateo, who is not going to be <laughs> yeah, six like, feet long. So if 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 Mateo is is three feet tall, 
like, yeah, that the iguana is more than half the size of Mateo, but, like... <laughs> um, <laughs> no, what it's, what it's saying is Mateo is, is bigger than Greedo, but Greedo, uh, Greedo is more than half Mateo's size because Greedo is three feet long and Mateo's not six feet tall. It's all right, Greedo, Mateo whispered to the iguana, patting his head thoughtfully. You need to specify whose head he's patting. Um. <laughs> uh. I, like, if you say p- patting his head, that makes me think the the iguana. But he then he says thoughtfully, which makes me think of himself patting his own he's patting head. patting his own head, So, yeah. like, you need, you need to specify. Keith is just scared because he doesn't know you very well. Don't be sad. You are very unique. That's what my mommy t- tells me me he sounded out the syllables of unique as if he was still trying to learn the word correctly um (laughs) unique is a word that like is hard to spell but it's not hard to syllables it's not hard to say yeah like you are you aren't weird you're just unique is something you hear from adults all the time so you know the word unique before you learn how to spell it you wouldn't have to be sounding out the word it has yeah unique is only hard to kids when they're trying to spell it, it's an easy word to say. It's two syllables long. I remember reading, like, a word in elementary school, and I was like, unique? And my teacher was like, no, that's unique. And I went, oh, I know what that means. Uh, yeah, it's just, like, more unconvincing five-year-old dialogue. Um, also, him saying uh, uh, that Rachel taught him that word. Because we, we, um, we can't just have a five-year-old know the word unique. We have to also point out in the dialogue that an adult taught him that. Mateo was such a puzzle. The boy was so kind and warm-hearted, yet the way he spoke to the iguana made Keith wonder if the five-year-old had heard those exact same words too, but from his own parents. Yeah, that's literally he what literally he just, just said. said. That. He literally just said that his mother says that, and that's where he got it. He says the boy was so kind and warm-hearted, yet... He heard that from his parents. That's not a contradiction, so you it's don't have to use the word yet. <laughs> also, this is Keith Ace Detective moments again. Mateo is such a puzzle. I can't figure out this five-year-old. He's nice. <laughs> yeah, he's nice. And he said says words that sound like they c- came from his own parents when he literally just told us that, the wor- that he heard it from his parent. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like incredible. Like, Mateo's like, uh to this lizard i think you're very unique that's what my mom says to me and uh keith is like hmm this five-year-old is quite the puzzle perhaps his parents taught him that word i'm sorry i'm just like there's so (laughs) much wrong with this first sequence like uh keith notices that his hair is uh, a mess of bedhead which is like well first of all he has very messy hair to begin with. That's kind of his style. So I don't think anyone really notices. And he like, <laughs> yeah. he, he cursed under his breath, hoping Mateo hadn't heard. That's like the same like action. He can't curse under his breath and hope that Mateo hadn't heard the word he's just saying at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like, yeah, I mean, this is this is a minor thing, but like it reads like he's He's uh, swearing and at the same time hoping that, I think what this is going for more is is that he like swears unconsciously and then he's like, shit, I hope the five-year-old didn't hear that. Two are making eye contact and there's this little note here about how Keith doesn't like looking into people's eyes. Um, 
again with the the whole like this is uh perfectly right for like an autistic headcanon and a way to read his character which justifies some of the way he ways he acts but we we just know that's not the case because they make such a fucking big deal about alexi being autistic and this this fic tells us everything it thinks we need to know so right. if that was the case um yeah if if keith was intended to to be an autistic character here we would have been explicitly told that because that's what this fic does. Yeah, he does still still feel as though he's uh, coded, uh, potentially, as autistic in the story. It's just like, we know it can't be intention- intentional. Mateo uh, tells Keith that he talks in his sleep and... Uh, oh yeah, because we didn't mention this, but he, he says Lance's name in his sleep when Greta was licking him. Keith frowned. No, I don't. Mateo giggled. Yeah, you do. You like to say Uncle Lance's name. You say it lots. You go, Lance, Lance, Lance. A hundred and four comments on this line. Oh boy. Okay. Um, let's have a look. This will always be my favorite line in this entire fic. What line? The line <laughs> you you say Uncle Lance's name. <laughs> Yeah, I guess um, a lot of people just just joking about how this uh, this five year old has exposed him. Um, He's he is the only child on the earth except for Tommy in it that I can tolerate. I hope this person grows up to not be annoying. Uh, A lot of um, comments like I hate children, except for Mateo. (laughs) I hate to break it to you, but most kids kind of act like this. It's like. It's so funny because it's like I hate children unless they tell me something about my my uh, my favorite ship. If a kid shipped Clance, uh, I would like them. So Keith has some like denial I- internally about how like well I dream about guys all the time. It doesn't mean I actually want to kiss Lance. Um, Mateo says, uh, "Do you dream about him?" Mateo wondered aloud. "Do you?" He gasped. "Do you love him?" That's not something that would like surprise Mateo at all. That's probably exactly what he was told about, like, uh, how relationships work. It's like, you date someone when you love them. That's, like, a shorthand way to explain it to a five-year-old. Like, I mean, of course, in real life, people date each other for for different reasons. And uh, just because you love someone doesn't mean that you are dating them. But for children... Uh, Right, and also, like, in a relationship, you might not have... uh, gotten to that point yet if it's a young relationship or that might not really be the end goal or whatever like a five-year-old would not understand those nuances they probably think this is exactly what being in a relationship means right yeah we mentioned last episode how like keith is uh we we get um the idea that keith is like frightened of children a little bit uh he has a lot yeah. of like anxieties about that, and uh, he's not necessarily good with his kids, or at least doesn't think he d- he is. Um, mm-hmm. But it, in this fic, it's revealed that he's actually kind of a natural with kids, which I think, on paper, this makes sense because a lot of the time, people who aren't uh, trained in interacting with kids or have any prior experience just treat kids like they would any other person, like uh, not like like talking to them. Um, how they would uh, an adult um right and a lot of kids gravitate towards that because they don't like being condescended to and they are exactly uh, and they and they like that you are treating them as their equal not all kids act this way but i can definitely 
uh, by a kid, the kids in the Sanchez household um, gravitating towards Keith because of his lack of experience in talking to kids. Yeah. But then he does this thing that's like very uh, trained in interacting with kids. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Actually, mm-hmm. you know what? This line is important. Keith had no idea what he was doing or what the hell he was even saying, but he found himself doing it anyway. So he does as if possessed. Yeah, as if possessed, as if guided by some narrative hand. Uh, yeah. Mateo, Keith whispered, suddenly leaning down next to the bed so that the two were eye level. He was fully ignoring the iguana now, not caring when it crawled past him and out the door. Can you keep my sleep talking a secret? The five year old nodded his head instantly, eyes round in anticipation. It's a big secret, and you're the only one who gets to know. Keith was now holding Mateo's hands, clasping the small palms in his own. Mateo was taking this very seriously. Like, so you could get, you can get the, uh, Keith declared this, that they are partners in crime. Why did that scene happen? Why, why did Keith just suddenly start acting that way? Like, number one c- camp counselor? Yeah, what's extremely, like, uh, weird about this is you kind of think when he's starting this out that he's he's going to um, say more to Mateo, uh, but it's it's just like don't tell Lance that I said his his name in his sleep is the is the whole gist of it. Um, this is strange too because it's like he knows how to talk to Mateo on his level. He dis- displays like um, a natural ability with kids here. But he's also asking a five-year-old to keep a secret for him. Yeah. Which is like, you don't, you don't do that. Like, you don't put a little kid in that position. Like, on top of it being very out of character from what we've seen of Keith so far, it's also, like, inappropriate. Here's the thing, though. It could really work if that was the point. If it's like, Keith doesn't know what he's doing around kids. He has some natural ability, but he doesn't understand, like how you're supposed to act with kids. And it makes sense for a 20-year-old, too, because they're still, like, uh, figuring out how to appropriately act with kids now that they're interacting with children as an adult. But it's, like, it's never called out that, like, this is a weird position for him to put this five-year-old in, of, like, having to keep a secret for him. And this never matters. This, like, doesn't come up again later. The narration's really annoying, again, in the next paragraph. I think this is a prime example. Um, it, It says... It starts with, and then something strange happened. Um, you can start sentences with and if you want to be stylistic to it. But if you do that, it's like replicating the way uh, someone um, speaks. And the narration isn't like that because the narration doesn't have a character. The character that the narration has is just kind of whatever it needs to be in order yeah, to... Yeah, the narrator gets like overly conversational at times. Yeah, it, it's it, it's all, all rhetorical questions, which are incredibly annoying. Uh, and then something strange happened. Keith smiled. It wasn't that Keith didn't smile. He did at least every now and then. Look out for stuff like that. Like, it wasn't that blank. On the contrary, it was blank. Like, you don't need to say that. Um, when you say right. something strange happened, Keith smiled, that's all I need. That tells me the character, oh, they must not smile very often. And so this is significant. But then it tells us, don't worry. It's not like he doesn't ever smile. It's like, yeah, obviously. Okay, this is also just so bizarre to me because um, this whole thing, this is like the ending of a children's book. This is like, something like this needs to come after it's already been established that Keith rarely smiles. We need to know that this is a big moment, uh, because, because, 
I mean, the reason why we get the the and then something strange happened lead in is because we have to be told that it's strange that Keith smiled because this is the first time that we've heard that he rarely smiles. Like this is new information about his character that we're getting. He has also uh, pr- smiled uh, previously in this story. Previously in the story, <laughs> so it's not something I could have just assumed about him. But it reads like this is a big moment, like a turning point. Like, this is, like, the fucking end of uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Like, something <laughs> something strange happened. The Grinch's heart grew three sizes <laughs> that day. Like, it's it has the cadence of it being, like, a big payoff moment. Something has finally made Keith happy. Except that we didn't know this was, like, an issue he was dealing with to begin with. <laughs> so, just like, oh, damn. Okay, I guess that is strange nice to only know about it after the fact though we we get told exactly what the smile means and it is uh it was an odd feeling that felt foreign to keith a sense of protectiveness normally keith despised kids i don't even think that's true in this story like there's no proof of that it's not like he hears that lance has siblings and he goes ugh children i i can't fucking stand them (laughs) i can't bear to be at your house for christmas uh, you must do my laundry. <laughs> he seemed just maybe a little uncomfortable when Josie right. and Mateo were like running up to them in the driveway, but he despised is way too strong a word for this. Yeah, it's like it's like a far cry from, from that. It just seemed like, uh, I mean, the way I would have described his attitude on kids up to this point is like, he doesn't really know how to interact with children because he hasn't had to, you know, he doesn't have younger siblings. Um, he's never lived with other children in his foster situations apparently um somehow he's ever interacted with children younger than he is uh it's also his first day on earth and we have to be understanding but it it doesn't read like there there's any animosity that he has towards children i i thought he just didn't really know what he was doing but anyway he he uh he loves mateo now because they're partners in crime whatever Um, that means whatever Um... that means uh, it doesn't matter because it, it's not relevant. Um, I guess the the real takeaway is that he's having gay dreams about Lance. Um, and also, uh, he thinks Mateo is nice. Uh, so we get a, a, a break. Uh, day 1, 3.49 p.m. The first sentence dri- drives me crazy. After chasing down Greedo and banishing him to his cage, iguanas don't... Banishing like, him to his cage? Iguanas don't... Um, live in cages they need like makes it sound like they're crating him yeah they need several foot like long enclosures that go up to the ceiling and have lots of uh climbing room and trees and and stuff like that um so i got to assume that the author uh like doesn't know anything about iguanas even like all 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 my research i did on iguanas was like very cursory and but all of it like contradicts uh, the information that's in this story. So the author couldn't even do that uh, little bit of effort to make sure that the few times Greedo uh, appears in this story, um, it's ac- it accurate to, like, what iguanas are like. Um, but the other uh, scenario is that um, they know, and it's a joke about how the iguana sleeps in a cage, um, which, in which case, it's a joke about animal b- abuse. So that's not even better anyway i don't think it's supposed to be that because i think i think greedo's supposed to be a beloved family pet is is the thing it's just like do you remember when we were first like reading this fic we kept joking about how like the iguana from how it's described it's basically a dog yeah uh like 
that's that's it again. Like uh, in this story, um, Arizona is Ohio. Iguanas are dogs. Um, it's if if the iguana really is in a cage or a crate, then it makes me think like, well, no wonder he's so small. He's got like stunted bone growth. <laughs> right, but that that wasn't thought about. It's just like the author thinks that that's how you treat an iguana as a pet. Um, I guess we should also mention that, uh, the whole thing with, like, Mateo, who's, uh, five and this lizard is almost as big as he is, like, he's constantly handling Greedo and that could well be unsafe. Uh, iguanas are known to get, uh, physically aggressive during mating season. And again, we're talking about an animal that's almost as big as Mateo is. Yeah, and even if they're not aggressive, they have, like, very sharp claws. Right, he has claws, uh... When they're climbing on you, you need to wear, like, long sleeves, unless you have, like, actually clipped their nails prior. Right. Uh, also, I think in general, like, five-year-olds should be supervised when they're, um, handling animals, especially, like, in a lizard or something that doesn't emote like a mammal does and it's harder for like a child to read its body language um yeah but you know none of none of that super matters because the thing about greedo in the story is he's just here to be a wacky animal companion he's like he's a disney movie iguana he's the funny like uh animal companion character then it says falling asleep not even an hour after arriving wasn't the best way to make a first impression um, and it just kind of says that, like, objectively, as if it's true, which is, like, not the case. They drove for, like, 19 hours in shifts, and he is the guest, and he... They drove in shifts for 19 hours, so I think taking a nap is, like... He also, like, politely introduced himself. Yeah. And he is the guest, so it would stand to reason that he should be the first one to take a nap out of him and Lance. But the thing is, is that if if this was, like... Keith's own anxiety like oh what if they think I'm rude for falling asleep uh after saying hi to them or whatever I I should go like make sure they're not mad at me that would make sense if it was like Keith's own internal anxieties but it's stated here like it's an, an objective truth yeah the the way it's uh said in the narration it's like well of course it would be rude to fall asleep at someone's house and it's like well no not really but <laughs> Okay, can I just want to say one more thing about the iguana? I'm so mm-hmm. I'm so sorry, but it's like occurred to me that the way the iguana is written is exactly the like um, animal companion in like a Disney animated movie trope. Oh like, yeah, it's it's exactly that trope because usually uh, even if you have like a character that's like a frog or a lizard, they have it emote closer to like um, a mammal, like a dog or a cat. Uh, so that it's more easily, like, understood by the audience because the joke is you have this cute animal that's, like, basically just doing reaction images to, uh, the plot of the story, right? Like, uh, something, something, something happens and then you cut to, like, the animated lizard making a funny face. You say that this is, that it's like a Disney animated movie, but I would raise you, uh, this is just like Voltron and the talking, the mice that can telepathically talk with Allura. I completely forgot about the mice that that can telepathically talk with Allura. I forgot that was a thing entirely. If, except this is a modern mundane AU and so that doesn't exist. See, here's the thing is like, I think if, it, if this was still a cartoon, even if it's a modern mundane AU, if this is a cartoon, you can still get away with doing this trope because that's a, like an understood 
method of storytelling in that medium. It does not translate to prose. Like, I'm just wondering what's up with this lizard at this point. I think the only way you could write something like this is have it be tongue-in-cheek and kind of lampshade that the lizard is acting like a dog. Yeah, but that's just not That's not. Case. That's not what's happening here. But, like... I think that is why the iguana is written this way. They're they're doing that trope. It's it just doesn't work. But there's so much of that in the story. There's so many scenes that are clearly the author trying to write out like visual slapstick tropes. I actually really like the concept of uh, this next scene. Um, with like uh, basically Rosa is like rushing out the door. She has to uh, take Benji and Josie and Cleo to uh, their respective activities. Mm -hmm. Um, and is like, oh, I'm sorry, I should have made, I should have, we should be making Lance a welcome home dinner. But Lance is like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. And, and, uh, we, we, uh, we, we, we get the impression from the scene that Rosa is very attentive to all her children. And sometimes, and as a result, doesn't have a time to, uh, pay, uh, solitary attention to each one. So. Yeah, this is, this is nice. Like, it's showing, uh, Rosa being very, like, uh busy trying to help all her kids get to their extracurriculars on time like um you know it's it's pretty simple stuff but this like does work for showing us just like um what the day-to-day life is like in this family uh it being such a large family uh with children of all different ages uh their schedules of course very hectic and rosa is the one to have to manage all that is like uh she's very busy and that explains a lot of her um demeanor um how she can be kind of no nonsense it's like well she she can't afford to put up with too much she has to run a tight ship here yeah um so i do like that um yeah the end of that paragraph is uh josie fumbling behind wall and this next word is italicized still attempting to tie her shoelaces which is like (laughs) that reads is very judgmental to me excuse you um (laughs) she's nine years old uh, some, some, some children don't, like, develop fine motor skills as, as fast as others, uh, and also if she's fumbling behind and rushing, no wonder she's messing up, so, uh... Yeah, I, th- I thought it was that more, but, um, <laughs> it is, it is funny, like, it's, it's just because it's italicized, and there's not a lot of, like, italics in the story, so it's just, like, it comes across very, like, uh, she's still trying to tie her shoes, and, like, there's barely anything about Josie in the story... She's one of the most minor characters, doesn't have a lot to do, so it's... She, she's a nine-year-old who acts like a five-year-old. Um, That's right. I mean, we'll get to that. She, um, she enjoys Disney princes. I, I don't think this author understands how, like, apostrophes work, because it no. says, like, Lance nodded. You gotta buy me donuts. Apostrophe S. <laughs> Apostrophe S while you're out, though. Donuts what? <laughs> oh, you know. Yeah, I don't think this author uh, has a very good grasp on uh, certain grammatical concepts. Uh, that's, like, not the main egregious thing about the prose, but it's it's definitely uh, a notable one. Rosa hugs Lance goodbye, and uh, we get the, this uh, this paragraph. Keith felt absurd. He was a stranger imposing on an exchange between mother and son. It was so foreign to Keith. He couldn't remember a single time ever being held like that. Like, with, <laughs> I I know that's kind of like the core problem beto- with this conflict. You don't need to spell it out here. Right. Like, I know that that's the situation. 
I'm sure he's been in situations and around friends where, like, their relatives give them, like, goodbye hugs or kisses. Um, Has he so had friends I'm sure before? Like, yeah, it, do- it says he does. I mean, in college, he does. But yeah, he might not see their parents before. much. Oh, yeah, but th- there's also, like, some confusing stuff where it's implied that he knew Lance since high school. Yeah, I think so. It is implied at one point. By, like, the length of time that it's stated they've known each other for. But then that's never elaborated on. Uh, Danny is in the house, um, passed Danny out on the, the couch with a two-year-old girl asleep on his chest. That's, um, Isabella, who is a two-year-old who the writer writes a, very much like a one-year-old. But we'll get to that. Yeah, there, she's, humongous... she's written like a baby baby every time she appears that's in the story. That's a huge difference between the two, but we'll get to that. Yeah. We get some more really annoying uh, prose, the narration. Um, The narrator voice tries to do this thing, like, not only with the rhetorical questions and, like, directly addressing the reader. um, There's a lot of, like, repetition. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, here we go. Uh, Keith had never been a huge fan of dogs. If anything, Keith was a cat person. They were cuddly and soft. They rubbed their fur against your legs and purred. I mean, dogs do that, too, except for the purring. Yeah. Dogs, Um... though... Dogs were terrible. With the repetition, dogs, though, dogs were terrible. Like, dogs were terrible. They slobbered, they smelled, and they jumped on you at the most inconvenient of times. Terminator was all of those things. And more. And more. He was also jumped on you at the most inconvenient of times. <laughs> uh, yeah, I also, um, has Keith met cats? Because, uh... They they also uh, can slobber and smell <laughs> yeah. and jump on you at the yeah. most inconvenient of times. Keith actually gets a pet dog uh, in one of the later seasons, so they were wrong about this character. I mean, I, I would say I'm willing to let it slide uh, because that hadn't been released yet, but it's just like, I, I totally read him as a dog person, honestly. Also, Keith being a cat person does not, like, that's not relevant to this story. It doesn't matter. Again, yeah. like, I don't think there even really is a cat in this story, except like... They do have the family cat, uh, Lord Voldemort or Morty, who's mentioned, uh, but he's like a, he's a primarily outdoor cat, I believe, uh, and he doesn't really show up in the story at all. Yeah, it kind of hints, too, that it's not really their cat. I think he's just like a cat who comes to their house to be fed or something like that. Keith was amazed at how much Lance loved the creature. The creature? The creature. It's like he's never heard of a dog before. Again, Keith acting like an alien, not like a socially isolated or anxious person, just literally like an alien who's never seen dogs before. He's never been to Earth before. This is his first time. Um, Here here we have this, like, Keith didn't know why Lance loved the dog, and then we get he didn't know why Lance uh, could tolerate uh, kissing his slobbery dog mouth. And I'm like, I'm, I think that's a little less hard to understand. Yeah, I don't know what side it's supposed to come down on here because it's like... Most people would, would... Most people think it's gross when people kiss their pet's mouth. Yeah, I think that's like a notorious thing people think is gross. Um, yeah. So it's like another thing where it's like, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to read Keith as like hopelessly sheltered or if um, Lance is like genuinely a bit weird about his pets. Then we have a conversation um, about uh, Keith. Keith is... Keith wonders if Rosa is worried that they'll have sex with the house empty. Yeah. Uh, which, I don't know, I can almost like this because it's funny if if sort of the joke is, and this this might be the joke, that, like, 
Keith is thinking about uh, the idea of having sex with Lance for some reason. Because otherwise it's like, why, why would why would this occur to him as a concern? Keith says, really think about it. We're two college students supposedly dating and she just left us home alone. And like, Lance counters with like, we're not home alone, there's Danny and Isabella. But uh, yeah. But Rosa later hints that she thinks that they've been having sex the whole time and she doesn't have a problem with it. So oh, yeah. I don't understand. Well, we'll get to that scene. Yeah, <laughs> we will. We'll get to that fucking scene. Yeah, but anyway, uh, Keith is Keith is anxious uh, about the idea that Rosa might think that they've been having sex, which I guess remember that for later. Um, Keith says, uh, you and I both know you've had sex with people in the same building, and Lance says he doesn't, but then Keith mentions Rolo, which is a reference to the show where a minor character is named Rolo. Um yeah. Which is, like, they live, they're, they go to college and they live in dorms. Uh, yeah, wh- what do you mean you've had sex with people in the same building? They live in dorms. That's what everyone does. It's college. Yeah, it's college. Y- you'd be lucky if you haven't had someone having sex in the same room as you. Right. They, they're college kids. It's, it's college, folks. It just... Uh, and, like, Lance being like, I have not. I've never had sex with people in the same building. That's basically just saying, I would never get laid. <laughs> like, in this context, because they live at a college in dorms. Lance uh, says that his mom's not going to ask if they have sex because that's weird. And I would agree, except we find out that she does kind she of does ask, ask about them having sex. Um, yeah. Which is weird. It he's is right weird. About, he's right about that. Yeah. This scene is so stupid. It's very, like, high schooler who, not to fault them for this, they're in high school, so... Right, of course, it's it reads as high schooler stuff because a high schooler wrote this, but it is, yeah. like, um, it's out of touch with how college kids act about these things in a funny way. Like, this very much reads, like, um, a high schooler's approach to, like, dating and sex, uh, and uh, not a college kid's approach. Like, uh... I mean, it's still just very funny to me that Lance uh, denies that he's had sex with other people in the same building, which, you know, when you're living in a college dorm, that's essentially announcing that you don't get laid. This happens a lot in the fic, but the two act like, and this is going to sound like wrong as I say it, is like Lance and Keith act like two girls instead of two boys. No, but I know what you mean, though. What I mean by that is that girls are, like, way more pressured into, uh, like, not openly talking about sex and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And, I mean, it varies from person to person, but the social expectations of, like, girls is, um, well, I mean, it's it's very contradictory, uh, too, because it's, it's like, f- don't don't defile yourself before having sex before marriage, but also if you don't have sex before marriage, it means that... Um, you're a prude. You're a prude. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, and this is how they're talking together, which I don't know how the author uh, identifies, but I believe... I might be wrong about this, but I would say that I don't think it's unlikely that they spent most of like most of their friends in high school were girls their age because a lot of this reads to me as conversations that girls have at like high school sleepovers 
Yeah, it reads very like high school girls rather than college age boys. And I'm not saying that that's like wrong. Like, because, you know, it sounds bad when I say it. It's like, uh, it sounds like I'm trying to say, like, oh, they should act more like boys. But that's not what I'm saying. Oh, uh, right. Kind or of... like you're saying, like, oh, like, uh, this this is uh, this is male shit. Women wouldn't get it. But it's not that. It's like. Uh... Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of like if they were boys, I think they would be uh, fi- find it like more normal to like brag about having sex and talk about it. Right, that's the thing, because it is kind of the norm for, for college boys uh, to brag about how much sex they're having. Which is which is why I said it, it's so funny that, that Lance uh, is basically like, I would never have sex, um, <laughs> in response to uh, Keith saying that thing about you've had sex with other people in the same building before. Yeah, and to, again, be clear, there's nothing wrong if that they're acting like that um like in theory but i'm going to need a justification as to why they act that way right it's not typical college boy behavior so if if they're acting in a way that uh is unexpected for someone like you know for a uh college boy in the 2010s i kind of want to know why they don't have the typical like 2010s college boy attitude about these things yeah and it can be a lot of That's things potentially like character information uh but i know i know what it is is the author is just like assuming that everyone talks about sex in the way that high school girls talk about sex yeah and there's a there's more examples of this coming up so if you don't understand maybe you will later but um it- it happens a lot. I mean, we're going to get to that uh, scene where they play 20 questions, um, which is very much that. All right. So then we have a skip uh, and it's uh, 5.57 p.m. We just get the... I mean, you describe this to me as like, this is kind of a series of vignettes. Yeah. Um, then they go to watch a movie in the basement, which we talked about it before. Most Arizona houses don't have basements, especially not older ones like this one. And if there is a basement, fine. I need you to justify that to me. We can't keep complaining about it, though, because nothing about this house makes sense. It's just like, this is the Anne of Green Gables house, and we just have to accept that, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, that's just the situation here. It's stupid, though. It's dumb and it makes me angry. So they're ranking the Star Wars movies from best to worst, um, and yeah, this... and they proceed to give some Star Wars hot takes that I really uh, wasn't prepared for. I okay, this this the thing is, this conversation might be kind of cute to people who actually know anything about Star Wars. I don't. Um, I'm not like super into Star Wars. I have a basic familiarity, right? Yeah, yeah, but a lot more than I do. And the thing is, is that um, I guess this could tell you stuff about the characters if you knew about Star Wars. So, well, for me, it doesn't tell me anything because I don't know anything. But also the takes that they have about Star Wars are like... (laughs) Really weird, I think. Yeah, it doesn't tell me anything because nobody has this take. (laughs) It's just like, okay, so let's let's get to the takes. They are trying to, like, rank the Star Wars movies uh, best to worst, and they get into an argument um, about it, where uh, Lance is arguing that The Force Awakens is on the same level as A New Hope, uh, which is not a take I've 
heard anyone have, but I guess that's that's kind of interesting because like A New Hope is considered a classic and I think people have like mixed feelings on the new uh Star Wars trilogy, though I think Force Awakens is viewed like mostly favorably question mark. Again, like I'm not I'm not super involved in like the Star Wars fandom, so I don't um I don't necessarily know all these opinions, but it gets weirder from from here, uh, where, uh, Keith argues back, but instead of making the argument I thought he was going to make, where he says, like, oh, you can't, you can't put the new film on the same level as A New Hope, that's a classic, he instead says, um, The Force Awakens was a cinematic masterpiece, it should be right there next to The Empire Strikes Back, he argues for ra rating Force Awakens higher. So we're already getting into, like, opinions I wouldn't have expected. Uh, but then then Lance uh, starts saying that The Force Awakens is not that good because Finn is annoying. Is that a take that you've ever heard before? No. <laughs> no. It's, it's also, not. It's also absolutely not a take that Lance would have. Like, I only know about who Finn is and these characters from, like, cultural osmosis. Um, but right. I know that Finn would, if anything, be Lance's favorite character. How do you, how do you, how do you feel about that? Actually, watching uh, the first season of Voltron, what do you think Lance would think of Finn? Uh, I'm not like uh, really sure. I don't, I don't feel like I necessarily know Lance uh, well enough to get a beat on like uh, his his uh, preferred type of fictional character. Uh, however, like it's hard for me to imagine anyone just just thinking that's. Uh, that Finn is annoying, um, because I, I have seen people complain about the character, uh, the thing is that Finn attracted hate in the Star Wars fandom because he's the first, like, major Star Wars character who happens to be black. Yeah. That's what happened there. As a character, like, he's basically, like, he's a normal guy who is very nice, is, <laughs> like, his thing, which is, like, he was a he was a stormtrooper who like the first actual battle he's in he's like wait I don't want to be evil and kill people I should join the resistance like that's that's the first thing he does that's his establishing character moment he gets in conflict and immediately is like why am I doing this I don't think that's the sort of character that people go like oh this guy's annoying he goes on to say that um Finn complained way too much. Ray was super hot, but like she didn't even use that staff of hers. Like what the fuck? And Poe was barely in the show. Um, it's not a show; it's a movie. And uh, was obviously the best character. Um. Okay. Um. Where to start with this? I don't remember Finn complaining that much. Uh, it's been a long time, but I just like that does not stick out to me as something that he did. I mostly remember him being kind of like odd at new experience he was uh, new experiences he was having because he's been raised as a stormtrooper and then he escapes. Uh-huh. Uh so that's what I think was going on more there but I don't remember anything about Ray using her staff or not. Uh Poe got more screen time in Force Awakens than in the later two movies in that trilogy. So it seems weird to frame that as, like, a problem with The Force Awakens. Also, I have, like, a bad feeling that the author has made um, Lance oh, love Poe specifically. I just specifically, realized! Specifically because Poe is also Latino. 
that's that's why that's in there. No actual basis around how like he relates to him as a character, just he likes him because he's Latino. And, like, relating to a character because you and them share an ethnicity that's, like, underrepresented is one thing, but I don't believe that uh, that's, like, the case here, I think. Uh, the thing is, I feel like Lance could like Poe a lot because Poe is, like, a hot-headed fighter pilot. And uh -huh. Lance is also, like, a bit of a hothead and, um you know, Voltron is canonically a, a space uh, setting, like, I can imagine he would think a character like Poe is very cool, but there's there's nothing really said here except that Poe is obviously the best character, and given, like, the weird stereotyping shit in this fic, I just, I, I can't help but read that cynically. It's like, the author thinks that Lance would like Poe simply because Poe is Latino, and that's not even a statement on him viewing Poe as representation. yeah. It's just like, oh, he's It's just, I like him because he's like me. Which, I mean, that could be meaningful to the character, but this is the only time it comes up. So, Keith decides that they're watching Back to the Future. Right, because he's just sick of having the Star Wars argument, which I can't blame him. The Star Wars argument is bizarre. They both have really weird takes. Keith does this thing, uh, again, uh, Keith places his finger over Lance's lips. It's very, like, exaggerated anime slapstick. Um, because I don't believe that the character of Keith in this modern mundane AU would, like, be comfortable with touch that way. And if he was, it would be like, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. It's like, uh, I don't really buy it for a character who, like, one of his primary character traits in the story is that he has, like, issues around intimacy. <laughs> I don't really buy that he's, like, this physically touchy-feely with his friends. I almost want to like it because it is the thing, like, um... Oh, he's, like, overly, um, familiar with, uh, this guy who's supposedly just his, like, uh, platonic friend. Barely even friends. They're just acquaintances in the same friend group. What could that be about? Except that I just don't buy this for his character in general. I don't buy that he's this touchy with anybody. He doesn't have that kind of close relationships with anybody. Like, that's the whole point of his character in this story. So, Keith and Lance fall asleep together on the couch. Yeah, they start watching Back to the Future, but they don't make it very far in before Lance just dozes right off, um, and uh, Keith is also sleepy and ends up uh, falling asleep as well. Uh, they kind of, like, are cuddling up next to each other as they're falling asleep. Yeah, I mean, I, I've read this scene before that exists. There isn't yes. really anything to say about it, honestly. Right, it's... Uh, you get what scene is happening here. They are, um, they are sleepy, so they are more physically affectionate with each other than they would otherwise be comfortable being. Uh, you get the picture, uh, Keith wakes up first, um, it's the following morning, um, and Lance is, like, drooling on his shoulder. So, he wakes up and is kind of, like, gross. He manages to, um get up from from the couch like lance is still leaning on him but he shoves him off can um, i just really quickly point out okay yep. so uh, we can we can be super accurate with this because th it tells us the time like specifically yes okay so uh, keith and lance arrive at the sanchez household at 10 a.m I don't know how many hours pass between uh, that and when Keith decides to go to sleep, but when Keith wakes up, it's 3.18. So, so basically, Keith got there and then fell asleep and then woke up at 3.18 and 
and then got back up mm. and then at six o'clock fell back asleep and then slept for 15 hours <laughs> in a position <laughs> where where and he didn't get up once hey he's 20 <laughs> i mean yeah i i i can buy this but I also feel like it should have been mentioned. <laughs> yeah, like, like he doesn't get up and he's, he's not like, damn, I've, I've been a very sleepy boy lately. Yeah, there's absolutely no mention of it whatsoever. And there were way, are ways you could do this. It's like Keith looked at the clock in shock. He he had been sleeping for 15 hours. How yeah, the hell I, I, could I that just, be? I, I don't think the author noticed. <laughs> yeah, would it, would it, was it something about Lance being so comforting to sleep with? No way, mm. it couldn't be that. And <laughs> mm-hmm. like... There are ways that they could do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he, he gets up. Uh, he goes upstairs. Uh, Cleo and Benji are there uh, fixing breakfast. Keith uh, is embarrassed about his uh, bedhead. Right. Which, again, it doesn't really make sense for him to be embarrassed about that because his hair is just kind of naturally messy. Yeah, he kind of, like, has anime bedhead already. Yeah, and it says that, like... It normally would have made Keith feel anxious if it had not been for the equally embarrassing bedhead that Cleo and Benji sported. Um, it's not embarrassing. It's their house. Right. <laughs> if you want to get up and eat breakfast before brushing your hair, that's, like, fine. Well, this, I mean, I I might like this if this was, like, the moment that he realizes that he's, uh, he's in this familial setting and, um, everyone is behaving as though it's business as usual, like... They're letting their guard down around him and he can feel free to do the same. But that's not, like, really something he realizes here, so... Cleo and, uh, Benji, actually, Benji mostly, makes a quip about how, like, Keith and Lance must have, like, had sex downstairs sleeping on the couch, which is, like... Well, well, he actually says, like, that's what you get for being nasty, which is, like, completely inappropriate comment for a a straight person to make about a gay relationship, especially considering how he's 16 and especially considering how he's (laughs) Lance's younger brother. Okay, yeah, again, I just, I don't think the author thought about this at all. I don't think that uh, that's what you get for being nasty is supposed to be a comment on, like, it's nasty because it's gay sex. However, um, she clearly didn't think about it because, like, Someone calling your your sex life nasty is way more loaded when you say it to, like, a gay person. Yeah, um, it's like, I'm sure he didn't mean it that way, but right. I actually have no idea because I don't really know what his character is supposed to be beyond, like, the his guy His character is makes... taking showers and making sex jokes and yeah, he Yeah, that's the thing. And it's also, like, wouldn't it be concerning for, like, Benji if his brother and boyfriend had sex on the couch that the family uses to watch movies? Right. Like, wouldn't he be like, gross, guys, you did that on the couch? Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't buy that. Keith would have responded, though he strangely felt it not his place. This was Lance's brother, Lance's best friend, Lance's sibling. Um, yeah. You, you <laughs> Lance's just, silly you, rabbit. You just said <laughs> that he was Lance's brother. There's a lot of the thing with the, like, the magic threes. So, like, the author states uh, three things that are exactly, like, the same. <laughs> yeah, they clearly learned that rule of, like, uh, when you're going to use examples, you should use three of them. Except that at, at least two of them will just be the same example. Yeah, like, every time. Yeah. Okay, would you want to talk about Cleo now? Because her reaction, um, because her interactions with Keith 
are like they're flirting with each other. And I don't think the author realizes that. I think that, like, you know, if I'm going to... I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that, like, Cleo's the author insert, and uh, the author... That's not even going out on a limb, it's just, it's very No, no, this is me going out on a limb, is saying that Cleo's the author insert, and the author may have, at this time, had a little bit of a crush on Keith, this animated boy, which is fine. Oh, do you think so? But it's, uh, like, super obvious, because, um, this is what she says. Your hair is great, just by the way. (laughs) Cleo smiled up at Keith (laughs) again like Uh, right Um, like that's flirting between like high school kids (laughs) right he also feels awkward after she she says this which like on its own I would read it as like oh it's awkward this 14 year old is hitting on me Uh, except that like I don't know there's later stuff with Cleo where I know that the reason it's in there is because Cleo is the author's self-insert and so she wants to write her self-insert in a way that indicates uh that That she's pleasant she's she's pleasant and attractive uh but she doesn't consider that it looks weird coming from keith when keith is dating this character's well you know fake dating this character's uh older brother and she is six years his junior as a child when he's an adult Cleo, since she's the author that's writing all this, um, can uh, know exactly what Keith is thinking and tells him that he shouldn't care uh, about uh, them, like, judging him. She uh, says, we aren't going to judge you here. I know it's strange meeting your boyfriend's family, but we don't bite. Which is, a, like, what a thing to say after Benji just literally made a nasty sex joke about them. Yeah. Um... Like, that's what you get for having gay sex. Right, yeah. Um, it's also just, uh, uh, you know, Cleo knows exactly the thing to say in that moment because she is the author insert. Um, there's nothing, there's no reason that the character Cleo would have a particular insight as to how Keith is feeling here. She's barely interacted with him. Yeah, she's also a 14-year-old trying to she's comfort... She's 14. She's trying... A 14-year-old trying to comfort a 20-year-old, so... Which I think just... Uh, I don't know how much that works in general. Yeah. She's just so much younger than him that I could see at most her attempts at trying to comfort him being like, oh, that's, that's sweet that you would try that. Um, but... The, again, I guess because the author is younger than 20 and doesn't realize, like, the author is, as someone who's, like, somewhere between being 14 and being 20, I think is not, like, comprehending the enormity of the gap between those two ages. Uh, And so writes Cleo and Keith interacting more like their peers when they're not at all. They're in two very different age groups. But we'll get to that more. Cleo shows Keith around the kitchen, pointing out, like, just stuff about, like, oh, here's where you can get cups of water. Like, I guess here's where the garbage is. Normal things that I would have guessed that Lance, the host, should have shown Keith. Yeah. Whatever. Well, Um, he he forgot. um, And it says that she even showed him the kids' drawer and... This was a special drawer, one only used by Josie and her younger cousins. It held many things, plastic bowls covered in Ninja Turtles, place designed with Disney princesses, even a large cup with Princess Leia on the front. Um, They are starting to get the idea of the rule of threes, but 
it doesn't make sense yes. that it says like it's even a large cup with Princess Leia on the front. Why is that like more amazing than um the did you Ninja did you get Turtles? the sense that uh this family likes Star Wars? <laughs> Were you starting to pick up on that? It's constantly brought up, and I guess it's brought up because it's like oh this isn't weird for a family to like collectively because that's a pretty popular <laughs> right, media right. property. But it's of like course. brought up so much in descriptions that you would think that there's something that's going to be significant about star Wars in this family, but there's I, yeah, not. I thought, I thought it must, it must surely like mean something that everyone likes star Wars so much. Like there's going to be uh, some meaningful reference or something later, but it's, it's not, they just like star Wars because I believe star Wars was popular at the time. Uh, the story was written. This, this would have been um, when the new trilogy was coming out. I think force awakens might've been recently out at this time. Mm-hmm. It was definitely, like, the height of the fandom. Yeah, yeah, like, the the height of the fandom for the new movies. Um, uh, Kester, I've, I have a, um, something to tell you. Yes. You're not actually that crafty. Um, you're not good at arts and crafts. Uh, I know you knit, like, all the time. I'm literally crocheting right now as we speak. Yeah, I know, I know you you're do that. You're slandering me again. I, no, I'm sorry, but I know you, you, you do that. But you're not actually, the, the truth is, you haven't sewn a dress or made a greeting card once in your life. Oh. So, I'm oh. sorry, you have Shit. to put that down. I might have made a greeting card, but I haven't sewn a dress, so, um, I, no, I gotta so take it back. Sorry, uh, so, yeah. so they discover a plate that's like, <laughs> okay, okay, let me just read this. Uh, Keith uh-huh. finds a plate, um... In the kid's drawer, Cleo noticed the noti- noticed the plate and snorted. It was a white plate, though the original color had obviously faded to a thin yellow. What do you mean by obviously faded to a thin yellow? It's a color. It's, <laughs> like, relatively colors are pretty objective. Yeah. So if it's yellow, then I get the, uh, then yeah, it's yellow. Yeah, it's, it's more, this comes across like more, um, Ace Detective Keith moments. He's like, hmm, this plate... Looks pale yellow, but it must have been white at one point. Um, you know, he's he's very good at mysteries. The plate was covered in marker, all drawings done by a child. My mom thinks she's really crafty, but she's not. She hasn't sewn a dress or made greeting cards once in her life. <laughs> Rosa, fake crafter confirmed. That's also, like, not... I, I mean, I get, know from this context that sh- she means, like, artisanal. And, uh, uh, right, but and and like relating to arts and crafts, but crafty kind of has a different meaning. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I mean, you can you can say crafty in in that in that context. I think just more people think of the context like uh, cunning. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, when we were kids, she'd try to think of new crafts for us. One of them was drawing on a plate, which is sort of weird. Anyway, that one is not that weird as a craft for yeah, little kids. Yeah, it's not weird. <laughs> That's a fairly standard one, actually. Uh, so Keith, uh, starts, like, internally They even negging. make kits so kids can do this. Yeah, like, that's how standard yeah. it is. Keith, uh, Keith starts, like, internally negging the child's drawing, saying how it's terrible and probably was done when Lance was five or six, um, which is not necessary to s- state because, um, we know that it was done by Lance when he was a child and the year uh, is actually written on the plate, so he doesn't have to, like, speculate about it before he... Right. 
Anyway. Well, again, he's he's an ace detective. And he can't. He just can't stop himself from from trying to solve these mysteries. After examining the plate, Keith came to realize that the drawing was of two people, a small boy and an older girl. Their bodies were round and their arms simple lines, reminding Keith of potato people. Oh, potato people. It's not a nice thing to say about my relatives. <laughs> I like how it says, like, it reminded Keith of potato people as if, like, potato <laughs> people was, is, like, a, a thing. Like, no, you say that, like, the bodies looked like potatoes, but potato <laughs> people, like, aren't like a coherent thing that like how can that remind you of potato people <laughs> potato people we all know them in the corner of the play was a small note one written in handwriting that obviously belonged to rosa why did it obviously, obviously. belong to rosa i mean you could say like oh it was it, it was too neat to be a five-year-old's handwriting but um there are... keith is just such a great detective that he looks at this handwriting and he knows yes that is rosa's handwriting <laughs> Without even seeing Rose's handwriting before. But yeah, uh, Sophia and me yeah, by he's Lance. Yeah, he's a handwriting analyst. Sophia and me by Lance Sanchez, age 6, March 2001. And Keith realizes how valuable the plate in his hands was. I don't know why. He doesn't know anything about Sophia. I mean, we talked about this before uh, off the podcast, but we, we kept saying that like the much bigger twist would be um, them all talking about this girl named Sophia that they don't see anymore. And uh, they, they, they're like, leave the room exactly how it was. And I mean, the actual reason is because, um, uh, well, I mean, she was Lance's older sister and she got pregnant at 17 and ran away. Um, but yes. there's no mystery to this because literally in the next part, like one of the first things we learn when uh, Lance and Keith are talking is that Sophia ran away because she got pregnant at 17. Right, so there's never this mystery. It would be much more compelling if we, we like, didn't know anything about Sophia except that the... Because everyone doesn't like talking about her because it makes them sad. And Keith says, oh, she must be dead. Right. Well, we'll, we'll get into this more. Yeah, which uh, is why it's a surprise with what happens in the story. But here, there is no mystery. And Keith has no reason to think that the plate is valuable. Because the last time he talked about Sophia with Lance, it was, so why does Sophia hate you? And, like, very, like, jokingly statement. Uh, yeah, he doesn't... He doesn't know at this point uh, what the circumstances behind Sophia leaving the family are. Um, so he, it's one thing to assume that this is a valuable keepsake because it's um, it's something from a, uh, I mean, Lance made it, but he drew his sister and that's someone they don't see anymore. Um, however, Keith doesn't know any of the circumstances yet beyond, like, why they don't see Sophia anymore. So is it like, you know, this is, this is a precious sentimental item, or we keep this in a drawer because, um, we have too much resentment about her? Like, it, it could be so many things. Uh, we just don't know what is going on with the Sophia situation yet. He seems to have already assumed the truth about it, though, which is that, like, they all love and miss her, but they don't get to see her anymore and can't bear to get rid of any of her old things. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's just, um, he's made a lot of assumptions about the situation that just all turn out to be correct. Yeah. So I guess he really isn't a master detective, but... Keith and Lance are then uh, roped into babysitting, which... I assume that that was Rosa's idea, which, and like, let me, let me state that like, if this was meant to be 
uh, like a flaw in her character. Like, oh, she's around kids all the time that she thinks that babysitting is just like a normal job that everyone knows how to do. And since Keith is going to be living with the Sanchez family, he knows it like it would stand to reason that he would do his share of the chores, even though he's a guest, because he is living with them. Um, right. Instead of just like being a guest for. He's not just visiting for a couple days. He's uh, staying with them for two weeks. Yeah, but I don't know. I think it's kind of like, I mean, this is a big point I ha- we I both think we have about Rosa is that she's like the narration tells us that she's like the perfect mother but she's not like and you could very easily get a loving but flawed character out of this but i think it's just kind of rude to like rope someone into babysitting when you don't even know like their comfort level of kids it's yeah it's just kind of like a weird thing to to spring on uh keith i mean i guess i guess her her thinking is just like well lance can do it and uh keith might as well help but it's it's kind of it's kind of weird to spring to spring something like babysitting on someone with no prior discussion. It's just like you're you're trusting this person with your kids. Like you don't want to make sure that they're okay with uh, taking on that responsibility. Okay, and then and then uh, Rosa begins uh, re- recruiting the children for dinner. Like everyone has their job, right? Uh, and Keith hadn't been given a job, which I mean I get this. Like he's a guest. Uh, everyone's working. But he doesn't have a job, so he feels like right. he should do something. And uh, he sees uh, Rosa cutting the chicken. Uh, Benji is shucking corn at the kitchen table. Insane. Go Insane. To, go outside. Go outside. Go outside. Go outside. Like any other person who shucked corn. Um, like any normal person ever I mean, in the history of like the fucking world. Go outside to do that. I guess this tells us something about the authors. They nev- they've they never uh, shucked corn. Shucked corn. Which <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is like, come. Come on, you don't do that indoors. It makes a huge mess. Like, I can't. I'm having trouble like imagining sh- someone who has never shucked corn. <laughs> Look no further than the author of Dirty Laundry. <laughs> okay, like, whatever. Cornless behavior. But yeah, you uh, do that shit outside. Especially, <laughs> okay. like, with such a large family. Like, you're cooking for, like, ten people. <laughs> that, that's so many, like, ears of corn that are going to be so all over the corn, floor. so much corn, and it's all right. over the floor now. Anyway, um... But I like the idea of the scene. Keith, Keith feels awkward and uh, just kind of impulsively decides, uh, hey, Rosa, why, why don't I take over your job? And uh, she's very, very thankful about that. And uh, Right. She, she says, like, of course, uh, help's always welcome. Just reminds him to wash his hands first. So he, um, he starts getting ready to help. Uh, and then Lance he realizes that he, like... that he doesn't know how to do the thing that he just offer to do and like right you know, i think you could make a good scene about this it's awkward but it's relatable it's it's funny too like he uh he offers to to do this job because he feels bad about not helping uh but once he's already agreed to it and uh rosa has um uh, left him alone to do this task because she goes out to the garden to grab vegetables uh so now now he's he's there and is like fuck i don't know what i'm doing um Lance is still not helping. Lance was supposed to be tasked with unloading the dishwasher, but he's just goofing off on his phone instead. Benji um, looks up from uh, strewing corn all over the floor and uh, asks Keith if he needs help. And when Keith starts to reply, uh, 
Benji immediately yells, uh, Lance, your boyfriend can't cook, which uh, greatly amuses Lance. Uh, he goes, I finally found something uh, that the great, uh, the great Keith Geong cannot do. We've never been given anything that... That he like, can do. Like, what can he do exactly? <laughs> what I are guess, his abilities? Like, I guess we get information later on that... Uh, he's good academically, but otherwise we're just kind of meant to assume that. And if you think about, like, okay, well, why were we supposed to assume that he was good ac- academically? Like, yeah, um, we never hear about any of like Keith's uh, hobbies uh, in this. We don't hear anything about any skills that he has, except that he does well academically. Keith bad at cooking. Doesn't know how to cook. D- isn't good with animals. Isn't good with kids, allegedly. Um, which mm-hmm. which I guess doesn't count because he doesn't know that he's good at kids. Uh, good with kids. He's um, good at kids. Lance is just kind of mocking him like, oh, I thought you were good at everything, but I didn't like, I wasn't aware that <laughs> we- he was. I didn't think that. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, strange. I just, I did not have this impression of him that he's, uh, that he's good at all these things. And finally, we found something that Keith can't do. Uh, he doesn't know how to cook, but it's not like I had the impression of him as being, like, multi-talented before, uh... They have this, like, argument. <laughs> it's, um... Well, I mean, it's the Evangelion piano scene where, um... <laughs> it's literally that. It is, but it with, is the Evangelion piano scene. But, but with chicken instead. It's, uh... The, it's, it's it works of, better with piano. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work so well with chicken. Um... <laughs> But yeah, it's the Evangelion movie uh, piano scene, but uh, <laughs> Kawaru instead of um, behind him guiding uh, Shinji's uh, hands uh, to play As the he piano, plays, yeah. he's they're just cooking chicken. So they're just cooking chicken. Um, uh, so yeah, it is it is that scene. Um, Lance is guiding Keith through the motions of cutting chicken. Um, this is, like, written as if it's supposed to be vaguely titillating, but it's, it's mostly just goofy because of the activity in question. Like, it's it, it's hard to imagine this being, like, sexy. They're dealing <laughs> They're with raw, raw chicken. chicken. Right. Um, and uh, they uh, they kind of bicker over, like, the right way to cut chicken, um, etc. Uh, and while that's going on, uh, Benji uh, calls from the other room, Do you guys always fight like a married couple? Which catches them off guard as they're, uh, they were, like, uh, so caught up in their argument they didn't realize he was still there listening. But uh, this actually leads into... I, I thought this moment was, like, it's almost funny, but then the joke goes on for too long. Yeah. Where they're not sure how to respond to the, to the um, do you guys always fight like a married couple comment. Because um, uh, Lance starts to say no, uh, but then Keith, who's stink- thinking, like wait a minute, if we fight like a married couple, we're selling the re- relationship, right? Uh, uh, says, like, yes, we do, and glares at Lance to, like, back him up on this, and Lance takes it too far, and he goes, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, okay, fighting. Uh, Lance shifted into gear. Fighting is healthy. We do fighting, lots of fighting. Intense fighting, fighting with our mouths, fighting over clothes, fighting in bed, fighting in the shower. And Keith tries to stop him at this point, says Lance. Lance continues, so, like, don't worry if we start to beat each other up. It's because we love each other. It relieves sexual tension. It it goes on until um, Benji uh, starts to feel awkward and says, okay, I'm just going to leave now. 
and uh, picks up his like pile of corn husks <laughs> and starts walking out. You're of gonna the have kitchen. to make several like, trips, man, with a broom yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Um. I don't know. I I like the joke about like um, Lance Lance trying to deny that they fight, and Keith is thinking, no, we should go with this because he thinks we sound like a genuine couple, and Lance leaning too far in the other direction. Except then, like, it gets overly sexual from the way he describes it, and it weirds out Benji. But that kind of seems like, at this po- at this point, it's like, turnabout is fair play, man, because you keep making weird sex jokes about us, so... Yeah. <laughs> at this point, I kind of feel like Lance is justified in doing it, but it also makes the joke less funny because it goes on too far and it turns into a sex joke. Uh... <laughs> I don't know. They go out to the chicken coop. Um... Oh, yeah, because Benji tries to leave, but Lance says, no, I'm going to go feed the chickens, so you have to make dinner. Uh, so Benji is basically strong-armed into taking over the chicken project, I guess, uh, because Keith and Lance just leave uh, after Keith said that he would cut the chickens. <laughs> so he, he just immediately skips out on this task. Uh, they, they go out... Um, to the chicken coop, and Keith immediately starts questioning what was going on. Um, he's like, why were we doing the Evangelion piano scene? And uh, Lance kind of plays dumb and is like, I was just helping you cook. To which Keith says, yeah, but you didn't have to like put, my, put your arms around my waist. And Lance says, look, I, I've just got to sell it in front of my family. Uh, which is clearly not like the honest answer because he also forgot that Benji was uh was there and could hear him. Uh and I would say this part actually works because because uh the narration doesn't like directly spell out that he's lying here. But it's Yeah, maybe. It's pretty obvious if you're paying attention that um, he he is. Did I say that they uh went to a chicken coop? Uh, excuse me, I meant a chicken coo. <laughs> yes. C O U P. Um, they arrive in the middle of a, of a heated chicken situation, um, but, uh, they also get right up, uh, to the, to the, um, chicken coup before, um, Keith has the realization that chickens are stinky, which, as someone whose family used to keep chickens, um, I promise he would have noticed sooner, <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, he asks. He says, uh, "God, that stinks." Keith murmured while pinching his nostrils together. "What is it?" And then Lance says, "That, my friend, is fine cooked sh- chicken shit." Okay, I think if it was the smell of poop, Keith could tell. But he, if he was like, "What's that weird smell?" The answer is it's sulfur, because that's it's a chicken and eggs. I have to revoke his like detective card because obviously it's the fucking chickens that stink. You're yeah. right next to the coop, you you fucking idiot. Lance climbed in the shed slowly. The shed? You mean the chicken coop? It's the chicken coo. Oh, the um, chicken coo. Excuse me. He climbed into the shed, um, maneuvering so yes. that none of the birds could escape the barbed wire. Um, you're like. Wait, is he a manu- I don't get it. Is he maneuvering around the barbed wire? Because that's, like, really dangerous. You can't question the logistics of the story too much because none of them make sense. Yeah. Like, that's that's the thing here. But, yeah, uh, confusing logistics as he's entering the, the coop. Uh, my, best, my best guess is that there's, like, an outer enclosure, which is barbed wire, and then the coop inside the enclosure. Uh, but that's my guess from having owned 
chickens i'm unsure if the author even has a clear picture in their mind of what they're describing because it's um it's that hard to follow uh, anyway uh they have like a goofy conversation about the chickens um being lance's children they all have stupid like omfg random names like united states postal service 2.0 and teenage mutant ninja turtle which is like it would be funny if they were like weird names in the sense that oh there must be some kind of family joke around this but they these were like clearly just chosen because they are just like omfg wouldn't it be funny if there was a chicken named teenage mutant ninja turtle yeah i mean it is just it is just that because i almost want to defend it and say like well this this makes sense because um if you keep chickens the the thing you quickly learn about chickens is that everything wants to eat them and uh they end up dying all of the time so it it kind of makes sense to me from that perspective that like they've probably gone through a lot of chickens and maybe they're just giving them goofy names uh as like a way to keep track without necessarily getting too attached but uh, you know that that amount of thought absolutely didn't go into this it's you know it's just in here uh so that the author can make pop culture references keith is like again once again an alien and the narration keeps saying uh, stuff like, well, it calls the chickens ugly ass birds. Uh, no ass hyphen. Birds. So, like, uh, ugly ass birds. Um, I've never heard of an ass bird. <laughs> so, like, very insulting to the chickens. And, uh, again, the narration is, um, I mean, the, if the narration was always just Keith's thoughts and Keith's perspective, but told from, like, a third-person limited view, that would be fine. <laughs> but the narration... Oh, yeah. It's like, it's clearly not always Keith, so I guess it's now, now it's Keith, but later it's just kind of an objective narrator who's just sort of judgmental about the way that Keith is acting, which, again, would make sense if, if this was told from, like, my idea of how the story should have been done. It's like Keith telling the story of how uh, he and Lance started dating, and he's kind of, like, judgmental about his past self, and he's like, oh, Keith did this stupid thing, but instead it's the narrator. No, but you're right though. It does it does make this confusing because it because uh since the narration isn't firmly from Keith's perspective all of the time, it kind of seems like the narrator here is calling the chickens ugly ass birds. Yeah. Um I don't know why the narrator has an opinion on chickens. Like I don't think everyone thinks that chickens are ugly, so it doesn't make sense to say that from an objective standpoint. Yeah. Um I mean, I've seen from, from the internet that many people think chickens are cute um, and even want to own them as pets, uh, which is an opinion you can only have if you've never actually interacted with a chicken as far as I'm concerned. But um, it's definitely not like an universally held opinion that they're that they're ugly. It's just that the narration gives us objective perspectives so often that I can't read that as just like, oh, well, that's just what Keith thinks about chickens. The narration tells us objective things so often. One of the chickens crawls over Lance's face and Lance, like, gets on the floor with the chickens and is, like, rolling in chicken shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that is crazy to me. <laughs> oh, they're about to eat dinner. It's so gross. <laughs> Why are you doing this? Like... He knows full well how gross it is. And uh, Keith uh, snaps a photograph of him doing this. Um, right. And then goes to, like, send it to their friends. To the group chat, yeah. To the group chat, which is weird. Uh, which, like, Lance is, like, super, like, oh, how dare you take this embarrassing photo of me? But it's, like, I think you're just kind of like this all the time, so that's not embarrassing. 
Right, it's also, like, I don't think he is embarrassed of how he acts with his chickens. Like, he he's clearly affectionate towards them and views them as his pets. Uh, so I don't think it's, like, embarrassing for, from his perspective. Like, oh no, you caught me having a fun time with my pets that I love. Yeah. <laughs> this is so embarrassing, I'll never live it down. Right, like, that's not what he's thinking. Okay, so, um, dinner time. Dinner time. Okay, okay. Um, 5.21 p.m. And then at 6.10 p.m. they're eating. It didn't take long to cook that chicken. Or all the corn. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the author just, again, clearly did not actually think about these things. Keith wasn't aware that they sold tables that fit more than six people. Um, Well, that doesn't tell me too much. He wasn't aware that weeds existed until, like... Again, just like that, you could say Keith had never seen a table that fit more than six people in real life. But that doesn't actually make sense because, like, has he never been to a cafeteria? Yes. <laughs> like, those things can see, like, 20 people. <laughs> 20 yeah, kids. He's, uh... <laughs> he's never heard of that. Um, He's never heard of it. and uh... Yeah, I mean, like, does this college not have dining halls? No, I guess not. But again, this could <laughs> be easily fixed by saying something like, Keith had never dined in a formal setting, or I guess whatever you want to call it, um, with more than six people or something like that. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, um... They said grace before dinner, which was something Keith actually did understand. He'd had religious oh, he foster something. parents. And this wasn't much different. Uh, he did Are let Are you proud of him? He understood a thing. <laughs> I think regardless of whether or not you'd, um, had religious foster parents, I think you know what grace is. Like, even if you don't even know any, like, specific prayers, you'd, yeah. you'd know what grace was. <laughs> Surely you've heard of the concept, yeah. There was a lot of laughing, a lot of noise, and a lot of something that Keith just didn't get. What was it? Domesticity? Love? A sense of belonging? Whatever it was, Keith liked it. You just described what it was. Yes! You could just say there was something that Keith just didn't get. Whatever it was, Keith liked it. Yeah, we're able to, like, make basic inferences about what's going on in the story. Okay. So, so next we, uh, we get to the stuff with Jamie. During dinner, Keith met Lance's father, Jamie Sanchez. Mr. Sanchez was tall and wiry, his old hands rough and calloused. His hair was graying, but not necessarily balding. And he wore Those circular... Those things don't have anything to do with each other. Okay, so his hair is graying and not necessarily balding. Is it balding or not? Is it not? balding or not? Is it balding or not? Is it fucking balding or not? He was nice, Keith would admit, but he was also terrifying. Just from the way Jamie looked at Keith, it wasn't disgust or anger that he wore, just frustration. Like p like a part of him wanted to be grateful that Keith was, was there, and yet another wanted to politely ask him to get out. So Keith has been out since, like, at least high school, and he doesn't recognize what this um, emotion is that Jamie is kind of directing towards him. It's very odd. It's like, uh... It's like this is a mystery that he has to solve. Again, uh, Keith, a detective, uh, trying to figure out why this uh, older straight man is um, behaving in a certain way towards him. Like, why would he not instantly assume that this is homophobia? Especially when, when from his uh, narration... It's just extremely clear that that's what's going on here. It's like, uh, what else could it possibly be? He doesn't have a problem with the idea of his son bringing company over, but he's bothered that 
his son is dating a boy. Like, that's so clearly what's happening. Okay, I'm going to read this next part, this next two paragraphs, and then we'll talk about it. Yeah. Keith also met Daniel's wife, Rachel, who fed cooked carrots to Isabella. The two-year-old sat in a Sesame Street high chair, an old piece of furniture with the plastic edges frayed and the cushion seat ripped. Faded lines of blue and green color marked the tray, like at, a one t- at one time, a young Lance had colored all over it in Crayola. Isabella liked staring at Keith. At first, Keith thought he looked he just looked scary. But later, Lance assured him that his niece, Isabella, just liked to observe new people. She was cute. If you considered orange carrot on a baby's face to be cute. She had a lot of hair, even for a two-year-old. Okay, first of all, I like how we just zip right past to uh, describing Rachel in any way. Keith met Daniel's wife, Rachel, who fed cooked carrots to Isabella. And then it goes on to describe Isabella. It's like, okay, but what about Rachel? (laughs) Oh, she doesn't matter. Because Rachel actually does show up as a pretty, like, I mean... Now would be a good time to actually, like, give Rachel a character because she does have, like, a character later on. She does. Uh, and she, she has sh- kind of a breakout scene later. Yeah, and she shows she shows up like she's had a character all along. Now would be a good time to describe her and describe what she does and what she's like so that it would make her mm-hmm. just kind of appearing in, the, in some of the scenes later on, like, feel more natural. And secondly, um, this is not a two-year-old. This is a one-year-old yeah um two-year-olds are toddlers they're like full people they're not babies uh in the sense that a one-year-old is uh two-year-olds can walk around and dance and sing and babble uh and they like they have their own way of talking they can say short sentences um this one just says like maybe one or two words uh uh she's having uh her mother feed her cooked carrots uh as if she's like a little baby, um, but two-year-olds can eat on their own, and it's pretty important for them too because they have to uh, develop fine motor skills. Yes, and this could work if it was like, oh, this uh, this child is developmentally disabled or is not meeting milestones in the way that uh, other children typically would, and so it's perfectly normal for her to act this way. Except the reason I know again why this is not the intent is because uh, if it was, then we would be told. <laughs> Because this... we would we would be told because of uh again how things are handled with uh the minor autistic character who shows up later on yeah um so it's definitely not that we're supposed to assume that um Isabella is developmentally delayed uh the author thinks this is what two-year-olds are like yeah um, and doesn't realize that uh Isabella reads like she's closer to six months or a year in these scenes um yeah six months to a year ish is how she acts yeah, it 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 depends a little, but uh, she definitely reads as younger than toddler age. A two-year-old, um, it, it says that Isabella likes staring at Keith, which is the kind of thing that babies do. Like, babies stare, like, intensely at, like, people, and sometimes they look like they're about to, like, punch you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, so I could get why, I, I could understand why Keith would be like, why is that baby staring at me? Is that baby mad at me? Does that baby not like me? And Lance would just be like, oh no that's just what babies are like they're observing you and um but but this is a two-year-old so it is weird that she's just kind of staring at keith without saying anything yeah um a two-year-old I would be like, like who's dad yeah i also liked the line she was cute if you considered orange carrot on a baby's face to be cute <laughs> it's um not the because carrot. it implies that what's cute is is uh is not the baby's face but the orange carrot 
It also says she had a lot of hair, even for a two-year-old, but I'm... Two-year-olds typically have, like, full heads of hair. Like... This is, again, you're you're talking about a six-month-old. Like, it's definitely true that, um, some people like me didn't grow hair until I was... Until I was three years old, because I didn't. Some people are late to growing hair, um... Well, hairless. Shut up. Um, but what it says is she had a lot of hair even for a two-year-old, and I can't can't help but think, it's meant to say, she had a lot of hair for a two-year-old, because this, this person (laughs) thinks that this is an infant, and some infants had hair, and if an infant had long hair and a lot of hair, that would be notable, but it's Mm -hmm. not for a two-year-old. Right. (laughs) I expect two-year-olds to have, like, a normal amount of hair. They usually do. Cleo's picking at her salsa chicken, whatever the hell that is. Um, doesn't need any explanation. Let's just insert, like, the word salsa into this because, you know, they're Latino. Because yeah, they're Latino. Um, but Cleo asks uh, Keith and Lance how they met, to which uh, Jamie tries to, like, ward off the conversation by saying maybe we shouldn't talk about Lance's pause relationship at the dinner table in case you didn't already get that he's homophobic. But then immediately after this, uh, we have a paragraph of narration where it says, Keith didn't understand why Mr. Sanchez was against this, against Lance and him. Okay, so yes, the relationship was fake, but the Sanchez family didn't need to know that, and something inside Keith made him genuinely angry. They may not have been truly dating, but that didn't mean Keith couldn't feel a sense of protection for Lance. Lance was his friend, or at least some variation. Why does he- why does he not understand why Mr. Sanchez is against this? and feeling a sense of protection for Lance. It can't be both. Right, you have to pick one, because, uh, first of all, I'm confused by why he doesn't recognize, um, homophobia when he's... uh, I mean, we get the general sense from the story that he's at least known that he's gay since he was a high schooler and has perhaps been out since that time, although it's, it's hard to say he did, like, um, have some relationships with boys in high school, so it's likely that he's been out to some degree since then. Uh, he surely has had experiences with homophobia before. Like, that's it's crazy uh, to be like, yeah, there's no way that this 20-year-old gay man um, would recognize an adult uh, older than himself being homophobic towards him. Like, of course he knows what that's about. And then from the next part of it, he obviously knows what it's about because uh, he's referencing that he feels a desire to protect Lance. And what is he protecting Lance from if not his homophobic father? The strange thing was that Mrs. Sanchez had readily expressed her acceptance and support for Lance. Daniel, Cleo, Rachel, Benji, even Josie had all shown signs they loved Lance unconditionally regardless of his sexuality. What do you mean by even Josie? She's nine. (laughs) Right, it's it's like uh, that uh, the assumption is that uh, she's too young to be woke or something, like, <laughs> which is so funny because, like, I mean, that's that's kind of the opposite of how it goes. Like, kids don't know the discourse around these things. They'll just accept this information. Uh, 36 comments on uh, the next line um, where, uh, like, uh, uh, Jamie's like, oh, I don't think we need to talk about Lance's uh, relationship at the dinner table. And Rosa is kind of like passive-aggressive to her husband, and she says, actually, Mrs. Sanchez began looking away from her husband and towards Lance with a motherly smile across her lips. I'd love to hear the story. And Mm -hmm. 36 comments on this line. 
calling it queen behavior. Uh, protect Rosa at all costs. Um, <laughs> I think we, we have a lot to say about this, but... Um, the bar's lower than it should be. First of all, this isn't even framed as a dunk against uh, Jamie because she's not, like, being passive-aggressive. She's just, like, kind of encouraging Lance in this sense. We don't, like, have any... <laughs> it says, like, th- there's, um... She's handling it in the most, like, diplomatic manner possible. Like, I, she doesn't call out yeah, Jamie um, for trying to avoid this story. She just says, well, I'd love to hear it, you know, encouraging them to continue without uh, actually pulling Jamie up on uh, his homophobia. And... Which is not Again, good. like, this m- may not be the time and place. Uh, they are at the dinner table. Uh, there's small children present i can get why she doesn't want to turn this into a fight right here and right now but we know um this becomes clear later that like jamie has taken this homophobic attitude towards lance basically since he came out and rosa has not been addressing it she's basically just been rug sweeping and that is not like uh which would make a good character that's an interesting yes. character, uh, a mother who loves her children unconditionally, regardless of their sexuality, but isn't, but still isn't, isn't willing to go to bat, for isn't them. willing to go to bat for them um, because she wants to preserve the peace within the household, even if it means uh, neglecting the needs of her son. Yeah, yeah like, I mean, like, it's, it's a very compelling character idea because this is something that uh, so many LGBT people have experienced with. With this, uh, I'd say, like, this is one of kind of the stock parent responses where um, your parent is supportive but um, remains on the sidelines and will not actually uh, defend you. Um, Basically doesn't see it as as big a deal as it is. Uh, Like, Rosa's not recognizing that um, Lance needs help like navigating this relationship with his dad judging him for his sexuality uh she's just trying to keep the peace with the household and in doing so she's neglecting the needs of her son this could be like a really compelling story about how like even though she's trying her best as a parent uh she is failing lance by trying to keep the peace in the house I think we've said enough for now. Um, yes. we, have, we could have a lot to we'll say come about back it to later. This. Once we, we'll come back to this. Yeah, once we yeah. come up with more, like, examples of why why, why we feel this way. But, um, so, uh, Lance and uh, Keith have a story about how they met, which isn't, like, which they made up, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought, I thought that perhaps, like, bits of this are true and... Uh, the rest of it's made up, but, uh, the way Lance explains the story, uh, is that they met through, uh, their roommates, and, uh, we don't know if this is the case or not, because we get, like, confusing information about how Keith and Lance met, like, there's, a Yeah, we're... There's something later that implies that they've known each other since they were high schoolers. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a weird thing to lie about then. Like, which right. which is funny because it's like, it could, you know, you can make up some funny uh, scenario about this. It's like, oh, they were rivals in high school and they both tried to do really good um, on their, like, college entrance uh, stuff that they, uh, so they were like, hey, uh, 
this will be a good uh, proof to Keith or proof to Lance that I can do really good academics and I'll never see them again. It'll be my final fuck you to this guy. And then they end up at the same college. They get into because, the same college, Because yeah. they both have the same idea. Like, that would be funny. That would be funny and cute. Yeah. It's never brought up. Yeah. Um, we don't know what their actual, like, uh, backstory for meeting each other is. So I guess we might as well take, like, the parts of this that aren't obviously lies as true because they're the closest thing we get to a story here. Um, but anyway, uh, what Lance says is that, um, they met through, uh, roommates, uh, he explains that his roommate is, um, is Hunk, and, uh, that Hunk is lab partners with Keith, uh, and so Keith would come over to study, uh, meanwhile Keith is roommates with Shiro, who Lance, um, says is super hot, uh, at this point, the story gets kind of interrupted because Benji starts teasing and asking him how hot, uh, and Lance says hotter than Chris Evans, which kind of derails the conversation because uh, Rosa's shocked at the idea of someone being hotter than Chris Evans. Uh, after this conversation about how, how hot Shiro is goes on for a little bit, uh, Benji asks um, why, uh, why Lance isn't dating uh, Shiro then. And Keith cuts in at this point, um, to explain, uh, that, um, Lance asked Shiro on a date and was rejected. And we do get narration confirming that this part of the story at least is true. So that what did part happen. was fake? <laughs> and then, yeah. and then, and then Mrs. Mr. Sanchez, they, they like argue a little more. It's very like, maybe these jokes could work in like, like visually. Yeah, it's not, it's not terrible. The problem with all all the jokes in this story is that it's it can never have good comedic timing because everything is bogged down by the absolutely insufferable narration. The author's very bad at writing dialogue because of their habit of, I mean, we said this last time, but um, we can't just have a back and forth established um, because there's there's paragraphs of like description of what the characters are thinking and feeling uh, between like everything that gets said. So it's very hard to, like, gauge the sense of, uh, pace throughout this conversation. Anyway, uh, they don't really end up finishing the story because after, after the thing about, uh, Shiro rejecting Lance, Jamie, Jamie says, uh, Lance is doing the dishes tonight. He basically says, like, all right, dinner's over, which, uh, if Rosa was supposed to be, like, the, um, passive-aggressive, like, queen defending her her son uh because she's the one who prompted them to tell the story i would expect her to step in and be like now now jamie they didn't finish their story right um but instead he just gets up and it's treated like an end to the scene and the the reason that um uh, the scene ends is because the author couldn't actually think of a good uh ending for their fake story or whatever <laughs> right but also um i want to talk about this because uh Jamie gets up and declares that Lance is doing the dishes tonight. Uh, Lance tries to argue uh, this is apparently not his typical chore, uh, but Jamie shuts that down and says, no exceptions, that little stunt with the chickens earlier is going to cost you. Yeah, I don't know what what he means. What stunt with the chickens? I think perhaps what he's referring to is like Lance kind of wriggling out of dinner chores by going to feed the chickens instead. Uh, however, it seems like, um, a very transparent excuse to end the conversation. Yeah. And in that context, he's essentially punishing Lance here. Yeah. By assigning him a chore 
for daring to talk about, like, being bisexual at the dinner table, yeah. which is fucked. Uh, but it's not really commented on. Instead, this is this is kind of made into a joke scene. Uh, Keith uh, fakes a coughing fit to hide that he's laughing. Um, and we get, the, we get the description that Lance looks like a defeated puppy um, and is looking sad-eyed as uh, the rest of the family is piling their dishes into the sink. It's meant to be comedic. Yeah, he literally uh, says, but, but I didn't even finish my story, which you could easily interpret it as, like, Lance being like, oh, I I thought everyone was, was being supportive about me and discussing my, my bisexuality openly. Um, right. But then they... Right, he thought it was okay for him to to talk about what dudes he thinks are cute at the dinner table. But that caused a commotion. for it. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's... It's sad. I want to really feel for him here, but, but this, that's is, not the this is being treated as comedy, um, and it's it's being played for laughs that he's, like, uh, upset here. Yeah. Because it's meant to just read as, oh, he's upset because he has to do it, sure, and he's, like, sulking, when I want to read it as he's upset because he's being punished for talking about liking boys. Uh, it sucks. Um, anyway, Lance, Lance continues moping, um, insists that Keith, uh help him to which Keith eventually acquiesces. This is one of the rare instances where we just get a dialogue back and forth, but yeah. it's just help me. No, help me. No, help me. Fine. Um, uh, like regardless. Yeah. It's like, I can't think of any other like conversations that are like this. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's such a simple one. Normally it would be like, help me. Keith didn't want to help. Lance was annoying. Blah, blah, blah. Help yeah, me. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> Keith swore that he wouldn't help, yet Lance's sad puppy dog eyes were looking at him. Help me. Keith groaned. Fine, he would right, help him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, Yeah, yeah, it's the one time it doesn't do that, and I know why. It's because this, this quote is written to be, like, the quotable thing from the story. There had been no leftovers. Lance informed Keith that there never was any. I don't believe that at all. If you're cooking for a large family, you cl you cook in bulk. You're not going to cook the exact right amount uh, every time. Like, if what you mean to convey is that the food is delicious and the family eats a lot, uh, say that, like, there's uh, there's fewer leftovers than expected. This also undercuts the angle of, like, Jamie ending the dinner abruptly. If they've yeah. eaten all the food, yeah. then yeah, dinner is over. Regardless, uh, as they're doing dishes, um, Lance turns on the radio, and Keith says immediately, if you dance, I'm breaking up with you. Uh, Lance uh, is like, I just turned on the radio, that doesn't mean I'm gonna dance. Um, but sure enough, he is going to dance. Um, let's talk about Lance's dancing. The song is Mamma uh, Mia, so and uh, Keith doesn't recognize this, uh, like... He, he he's has to do detective work about fucking Mama Mia. Um, it was oldies, <laughs> definitely oldies, and not the type that Keith listened to. No, this song was a Footloose, West Side Story, Sixteen Candles sort of cringe, the kind that turned into memes. He's able to tell all this about the song before he's able to recognize that it's ABBA, which is is funny to me. Um, Fifty three comments on this line. Um, I'm guessing it's people offended that uh the character in this story is calling ABBA cringe. Um. Yeah, I mean, he listens to Depeche Mode. Uh, I'm not really surprised that he thinks ABBA is cringe. Yeah, but again, we're back to the... This is uh, not his musical taste. But, but but this is back to, like, presumably the narration is back to being Keith's opinion, because otherwise it would be saying that, like, 
the music. The author is, thinks Apple yeah. is cringe. Yeah. Which I don't think is the case, but. Regardless, uh, Lance starts dancing and. He's surprised uh, when he realizes that the song is ABBA. I don't know why. Uh, yeah, I guess it's the first time ABBA has been mentioned in the story, but it's it's not really weird that you turn on the radio and ABBA came on. Anyway, Lance starts dancing and uh, basically uh, grabs Keith and pulls him into the dance. Uh, Keith tries to resist it. He doesn't want to dance. Um, it seems he, he views the idea of dancing as also being cringe. I guess to lead into um, the stereotype we're going to have to discuss here, um, this is how Keith talks about the dancing. Keith tried his hardest to stand as still as possible. He refused to dance. There was no way in the world he would ever do such a thing. Dancing with Lance, especially in Lance's kitchen, listening to Lance's radio, Lance's ABBA, Lance's house, Lance, dancing with Lance, no way, not in a million years. Except watching his hips move was surreal. Lance seemed to know exactly what he was doing, his move so completely effortless. It was such a casual dance, entirely simple and unique to Lance alone, and yet Keith couldn't remember ever seeing someone move so gracefully. Um, so in the show, there is one yes. scene where uh, Lance dances, and this is in yes. Voltron season one, and uh, to Clance shippers, this is a pretty um, notable scene because it involves, like, uh, it's a flashback to Lance's reaction to seeing Keith getting kicked out of the uh the garrison um and yes. and lance goes uh hasta la later keith and like does a stupid little horrible dad dance right so from that alone you could assume that maybe lance isn't a very good dancer uh yeah i think he doesn't know how to dance but will sometimes do a goofy little dance when he's excited point being that there's nothing in the show to suggest that lance is good at dancing in fact we see him dance and he sucks he can still like it, but there's there's nothing at all to indicate that he's good at it. Yeah. Um, the one thing that the author would have to go off of um, in order to arrive at Lance is naturally very gifted at dancing is that Lance is Latino. Yeah, that's the only thing. Is the That's the thing. only thing it could be. It's fine if you want to make a change, like, this character is good at this in this continuity. I mean, if you, you could make, like, a, like, a, a medical school AU, and there doesn't have to be anything in this show saying about how the characters are actually good at, like, biology or medicine. Um, yeah. But here, combined with all the other stereotypes, it's just kind of obvious where it came from. Right. I just, like, um, the way it's written about is, I think, what bothers me the most, like, tips me off the most here, is that, um, it's not that, uh, Lance has any formal training in dancing. It's not that he's, he has, uh, done dance as a hobby that we know of, um... As far as we know, he is simply naturally incredibly gifted at dance, and there's specifically a lot of focus put on the way he moves his hips. Yeah. As though this is just, like, something that he's innately capable of. And the only thing that that could be really implying is that he's naturally good at dancing because that's, like, a stereotype about Latino people. Like, I... I I just don't know what else that could be. It's... Oh, it, no, it literally just says right here. 
like natural talent like lance hadn't been to a single dance class in his life it's in his dna Mm. (laughs) obviously lance yeah obviously lance knew nothing about the waltz or any classic dances for that matter okay yeah like if you say i can dance that doesn't mean you know anything about waltzing that's a different thing. There are different types of dancing, <laughs> in fact. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it is, It is like, explicitly, he's just innately gifted at dancing. It's, it's weird. They start dancing. <gasps> Draco's point of view, lol! Yeah, uh, so they, they are dancing, um, together. Uh, Keith is, like, uh... You know, still in his narration complaining about how much he hates this, but he he gives in and just kind of lets it happen. And it does it does read like uh, he's secretly into this. Um, It's pretty clear that he's attracted to the way that Lance dances, but can't really uh, admit that to himself. At any rate, this is the point where we get a point of view shift. All right. So the last thing we get is uh, and maybe just maybe Keith would enjoy it uh, dancing with Lance. And then it goes, day two, Saturday, December 17th, 9.42 p.m. Spying on Keith and Lance wasn't something Cleo felt proud of. Like, okay, so it's now back to, like, her Mm -hmm. point of view? Yeah, I guess. It's never changed before. Like, you can do point of view shift in a story, but they have to be deliberate and neat. Yeah, it's also just confusing with, again, like, what we've said about the the narration in the story is that while it's mostly from Keith's perspective, uh, it never fully commits to being 100% from his perspective. Um, and there aren't many, like, uh, point-of-view shifts like this in the story. Uh, this just happens here for the specific reason that, like, Cleo needs to solve the mystery. Uh, which, I mean, like, you, you can... You can do point-of-view changes in a story that is fine but it's very like awkwardly established here this is not like a a thing that consistently happens we don't get multiple scenes from cleo's point of view like this is this the only one we get that's from her perspective oh yeah i think so right Uh, also look at this it hadn't been her original Mm -hmm. intent to pry she'd only come down the stairs to grab a glass of water before bed okay so the 14 year old is going to bed at 9 42 (laughs) yeah (laughs) she's she's sleepy this is a very sleepy household skipping ahead a little bit so spying at almost 10 at night in her pajamas no less in her pajamas no less yeah um in her pajamas yeah that's normal typically like people put on their pajamas when they're settling down for the night like after dinner that's kind of a thing people do very um, normal time of night to be wearing pajamas. Yeah, but at almost 10 at night, it's also like, it, okay, it points out, like, it's ludicrous that she's in her pajamas at almost 10 at night downstairs. And it's like, no, that's normal at that time of night. But it's abnormal. Right, the wacky part is that she's she's spying. Yeah, and the wacky part is also that she's going to bed uh, before uh, 10 and she's 14. Yeah. <laughs> Which, like, okay, if that's, like, I guess some people do like to go to bed early, but if that was the case, I would expect uh, there to be a comment Something about, about like, uh, normally Cleo always uh, retri- retired to bed at 8 p.m., but... <laughs> no, it, it, I mean, it could be like, um, Cleo usually stayed up until midnight, but uh, the day's events had tired her out and she felt full from the chicken, so she decided right. to go to bed and she would get up early to 
to start her chores or like what something like that. But I need a justification for why this teenage girl is going to bed so early. Uh, right. Or I need a justification like for why um why she's staying up to spy on her brother and we don't really get one for that either uh she tries to justify it by by saying that um well it says uh what had made her stay honestly it was the smile on lance's face and then she describes um and this this gets confusing too because she goes into how lance smiles all the time that he's very goofy uh he's a prankster he's he's a dork um but she's also aware that uh, he struggles a lot, or has. Uh, it says, uh, Cleo liked to think she knew Lance Sanchez, and she knew when he really smiled. She knew the difference between a fake grin and a genuine one. She knew him well enough to recognize when someone made him truly happy. She hadn't seen him like that since before the Benji incident. Okay, so he 40, gets this idea brought up. six comments on that line. Yes. No. No. First of all, this this whole thing doesn't make any sense because what happens is, like, it's suggesting that something happened mm-hmm. that made Lance sad and changed him forever. But what it's actually describing is a part of their life that was very traumatic, but uh, that yeah. ended up very well, and uh, actually, and made Lance and Benji's bond stronger as a result. Yeah. I'm not saying the incident of, of, of Lance having to give his kidney to save his brother from cancer is not a traumatizing and difficult experience, but it's also the kind of thing where you would look back on it and think, I'm glad that worked out, and I'm glad my brother's still alive, and I'm happy about it. That is the kind of thing that would probably make you, like, appreciate your relationship with him more, but it's been treating treated like a, like, oh, the thing where someone died that didn't end out uh, well uh, it yeah but it turned um, out very well and yes there are many things about the situation that was sad is like uh lance goes on to point out well i guess i'll talk about this later but you get what i'm we'll saying get to that right? scene yeah uh no but also um the other thing is that if we're being told here that lance has not genuinely smiled uh since before benji got sick and he's like, okay that is <laughs> i can't stress this enough but that's fucking, that's fucking huge. Uh, that casts doubt on everyone else's interpretation of Lance because, uh, he comes across very, like, happy-go-lucky and goofy. Are we be- are we being told that that's all a mask, that that's all the front? I-, I don't know if that's, like, intended to be the implication because this is not an idea that we come back to. There's a parenthetical w- that comments on how Keith is making mistakes, uh, with his feet. Uh, not my fault, Keith countered, his gaze focused solely on his toes to watch for any mistakes, parentheses, which he was still making, but whatever, parentheses, end. Who is this? Who's right. talking? Again, like, I think I'd be fine with this if we were solidly from, uh, from Keith's perspective the whole yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, that would be fine, that would, that would be, like, uh, something I'd accept as, like, characterizing him in narration but, and especially uh, if it was first person perspective especially if it was first person perspective not my fault i countered my gaze focused solely on my toes to watch for any mistakes which i was still making but whatever that yeah, was yeah, yeah. so much better uh-huh and it's such a minor little change yeah so so this 14 year old is spying on her brother and his boyfriend which isn't 
I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, I do not want to see or be seen by uh my my brother's uh relationship with his with his girlfriend. Yeah, this this strikes me as very strange. And again, like uh, only child this energy. Is, this is only child energy from the author. Uh, that they think that this is like a normal thing that uh, a sibling would want to um uh, spy on their sibling with their partner. Like I can I cannot fucking fathom uh wanting to do that i think i i would um do everything in my power to avoid it quite frankly especially if i was 14 yeah however uh cleo for whatever reason is just like because she's the author insert she's just fascinated with this relationship the reason for this is because she's the author insert and this is what the author would do (laughs) right so cleo is watching these two and uh listening to their conversation and the song changes, and the new song that comes on is one that Cleo recognizes as uh, this, a song that um, Jamie and Rosa danced to at their wedding. Uh, she's seen the, like, home videos of this. Uh-huh. And because this is a tune that's significant to their parents, uh, to their marriage, because, like, this is a song that the whole family has reason to, like, read in a romantic context... Uh, she observes closely, like, what is Lance's reaction to the song coming on? Is like, is, is he gonna say something? Is he gonna, um, stop or change it? Uh, but he doesn't, uh, and Cleo, uh, thinks from this, like, wow, uh, Keith must be really important, because this is something that's meaningful to our family, and he's sharing this. I just can't get over how better this story would be if it was told from first-person perspective. Like, even if it had a different narrator every chapter, like, maybe... Um, Keith says a scene, then Lance says a scene, and this would be the part where Le- uh, where Lance would be uh, describing a scene, and he was like, "Well, I I kind of hesitated for a minute because that song was my parents' song, but yeah, yeah, uh, something like that could work really well. Um, also, if we were switching perspectives all the all the time, it would be fine to do one from Cleo's perspective here. It just comes across awkward because we otherwise don't really do this sort of pers- perspective switching in this story." Uh, however, I guess, um... (laughs) Oh, oh, Cleo thought, a smirk on her chin. (laughs) Her chin? You know, know the place... What is it doing there? (laughs) You know, the place where your mouth is, your chin? It's not there. It's not supposed to be there. Uh, Cleo, you should really see somebody about that. I hope there's a doctor in the family. But anyway, she observes the two of them dancing to the song. Uh, it's kind of awkward, but they're um, they're getting closer and closer to each other. They are blushing. They're they're slow dancing together. They seem Lance like they're gonna questions. kiss. And yes, and Cleo giggles at this into her hand. Um, severe only child energy. I'm gonna keep saying that because it's it's serious only child energy. But she's anyway. She's excited because she thinks she's about to see the two of them kiss. She thinks the energy's headed that way. However, uh, as they continue dancing, the first time I the first time I read this scene, I thought that it was Josie. I got Cleo and Josie's names mixed up, and I said, "Yeah, this makes more sense for a nine year old." But it kind of does make more sense for a nine year old because I can see like. A nine-year-old might, like, wonder, like, what are rela- adult relationships like and want to, like, spy on that and see. But Cleo is 14. She knows. Yeah, she probably has peers who are dating. Yeah. The other thing about this whole scene is that uh, 
Cleo is very much not approaching relationships from the perspective a 14-year-old would have, which I think we should talk about more in the in a minute. Uh, but anyway, what, what happens here is that um, the two of them uh, are seemingly getting very close to actually kissing, and then they, they break apart and uh, kind of awkwardly step away from each other. Uh, Cleo is actually, like, she comes across, like, frustrated here that they don't kiss. Like, she is a, a clan shipper on deck. Yeah, because uh, she's the author. Which, right, which she is because she's the author, but this is bizarre because this is this is her brother. But uh, it says, Cleo let a disappointed whine escape her lips, all before she squirmed again into her own palm. This is the fangirl reaction. This is not the 14-year-old yeah. little sister reaction. Yeah. Like, this is crazy. This is weird. It's really weird. Keith's skin is described as pale again. Oh yeah did did you uh did you forget that he's pale? Mm-hmm. It said it before, but I didn't mention it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a mention of Keith's pale skin uh, when Mateo was drawing on him uh, when yes. they were playing. Yeah, in case you forgot, uh, Keith has pale skin. Yeah, which is really important for us all to be thinking about all the time. It's like, I mean, it's bad writing to over-describe your characters in the first place, but it's very strange how people's hair aren't, like, mentioned as much. That's the more typical fanfiction iteration of this. Yeah. constantly bringing up hair color. So the fact that it's skin color in this story is uh, a contributing factor to, like, the uncomfortable stuff here about race. But anyway, uh, when she uh, whines in response to them not kissing, uh, they actually hear her over the music and turn it off. Yeah, I don't understand. (laughs) How loud was she? (laughs) Fucking loud, apparently. Um, Anyway, Lance uh, calls off, uh, calls out, uh, what was that? And he shuts the radio off. Cleo, in response, uh, the line is, Cleo squealed, racing as quickly and quietly as she could into the hallway bathroom to hide. Couldn't have been too quiet. It's not quiet. as quietly as she could if she squealed, <laughs> but um, anyway, I guess they don't hear this because they don't come after her. Uh, we could spend a while on how the logistics of that don't make sense, but whatever. Um, she gets to the bathroom and starts thinking about what she's just witnessed. Uh, she thinks, why had they refused to kiss? They were dating, weren't they? That's what boyfriends did. Cleo wasn't stupid. She'd seen the movies, watched the shows, witnessed the relationships between her older siblings and their high school sweethearts. Read the fan fiction. Read the fan fiction. Uh, Cleo knew that Lance and Keith, not kissing, being awkward, blushing red faces, walking around each other, it wasn't normal. This was a crush, not a relationship. What were they hiding? No, that would just make her think, oh, maybe real life relationships aren't like they are on TV. Here's the thing. Cleo is 14. The relationships that she has witnessed between her peers are more than likely exactly like this. Yeah. People being awkward, not knowing how to navigate things like, when do we kiss? Like, if anything, I would expect for her to witness this and think it's normal when an older character might not. Because this is this is what, like, 14-year-olds dating looks like, right? It's weird for 20-year-olds in college. This is an indicator, like, to an adult eye that these two are not uh, dating because there's there's clearly, like, a level of physical intimacy with each other that they haven't crossed. But from the perspective of, like, a 14-year-old, like, uh, 14-year-olds who are dating, like, that's typically their first relationship. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. I, I don't, I don't understand why it's Cleo 
who uh, points out this is a crush and not a relationship, she's 14. 14 year olds don't, like, have a concept of a crush being different from a relationship, really, right? If it seems like this is gearing up for Cleo to be, like, the investigative, uh, kind of deuteragonist of the story, um, which would be kind of interesting, I guess. The, yeah. the next scene we see of her is her just telling Keith that, um, oh yeah, I know that your relationship's fake. So, uh, you, we, she has yeah. the question, what were they hiding? But apparently she figured it out pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, she just, she just, like, instantly figures it out, uh, between scenes, I guess. We don't, we don't get to see her actually, um, come to the conclusion of her detective work, uh, which is weird because it's set up here, uh, as a mystery for her to solve, and then we just skip to her having solved the mystery. You solved uh, it! screen. You solved it. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's not, like, um, making a point about how she's, like, you know, she's not an ace detective, that's Keith. Um... She's just the author, so she knows that they're dating. All right. So that is the end of uh, part one of the fic. Oh my god. It only took us... Uh, two episodes. Uh, two episodes and uh, roughly like uh, six, six hours, hours to discuss... The first part. Can the you first part of the story. Can you see why we can't do this line for line? <laughs> This is why we thought we couldn't do this fic at all yeah. for a while, because we just had too much to say about it. But then it was like, well, we can't not do an episode about it. Like, we are we are the number one Dirty Laundry critics out, out there. Okay. Um, so we're going to pick up with part two next week. But for our closing segment, we are going to talk about The Secret Life of Bees novel by Sue Monk Kidd. Which yeah, is it's a, not going to be so secret anymore, is it? Which is a heavy inspiration for this fanfic, believe it or not. So uh, Very heavy inspiration. Uh, <laughs> shockingly heavy. All right, so we will catch you after the break. We will catch you after the break. And we're we're fucking back, everybody. All right. So it's it's really incredible to me how we have so much to say about this and how um, integral this is to our current understanding of the book of a uh, of the fic. I mean, um, yeah. But, but it almost could have not been that way because this was kind of like a last minute decision. For me to be Absolutely. like, yeah. I, I should read. This was our like dotting all our I's and crossing all our, all our T's decision because uh, Secret Life of Bees is mentioned in the story near the end. It's something that seemed to have some degree of relevance to this fanfic, but we weren't sure how much. So it was just going to be like Siobhan's personal undertaking to read this book to see if it connected in some way. Yeah. However, it turned out to connect... In such a, like, crazy one-to-one -one way that we both had to read it because, uh, we've said it before, but Dirty Laundry is just the secret life of bees but with clants, which is fucking crazy. 
Um, I don't even know where to start with this. We haven't even gotten to some of the scenes in Dirty Laundry that are like the biggest one-to-ones to Secret Life of Bees. I, I guess we, I, I guess I want to, for this segment, and we can talk about the connections to Dirty Laundry later, is I just want to talk about yeah. the book as a whole. Yeah, let's, let's do that because, uh, we'll get to some scenes, uh, later in like the next, uh, few episodes as we're covering this, uh, story that's... Uh, we're going to have to point out that this is just a scene from The Secret Life of Bees. For starters, so everyone's on the same page as us, why don't we just, like, talk about the book as a whole? Yeah, let, let me describe the basic plot, and you can okay. jump in whatever I you you feel the need. Um, That's right. Okay. So basically, uh, this takes place in 1964 in South Carolina, and there's a girl, uh, a 14-year-old white girl named Lis- Lily mm-hmm. Melissa Owens, whose mother died uh, when she was young and she lives with her abusive father, T-Ray, uh, who... Right. Um, she just calls him that because he's not, like, the sort of guy you call uh, dad is, I believe, what she says about it. like um, Because daddy never fit him. And uh, yeah. so they have a maid who is a black woman named uh, Rosaline. And remember, mm-hmm. this is uh, the 60s, so it's actually, uh, well, the Civil Rights Act actually passes at the beginning of the story. Yes. So the backdrop is basically uh, the Jim Crow um, era Southern America. and um, Right, during the Civil Rights Movement. Yes. Uh, so that, that tension is just starting to really kick off. Yeah. So Lily's mother died when she was young, and Lily doesn't really like remember four, how. Right? Yeah, like yeah. like a toddler, and uh, Lily doesn't remember much about her mother's death, but she thinks that uh, she accidentally killed her mother when um, she grabbed a shotgun uh, because her parents were fighting. And uh, that's essentially the story she's been told. Yeah, uh, and and T Ray the... basically confirms this and says like, "Yes, you killed your mother. You didn't mean to, but." That's what happened. Right. And there's a little bit of ambiguity ambiguity during the story as to, like, whether that happened. But I guess apparently the, the author thought that it was uh, it was totally an objective truth that she did kill her mother. When... Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to we'll, that. We'll I have a that. lot okay. to say about that whole part of the story. But uh, yeah, the, the okay. point is that uh, we go in um, knowing that Lily thinks that she accidentally uh, killed her mother as a small child. And she doesn't really remember her mother much beyond, like, vague memories, but of course, of course misses her, especially since her her dad is such an asshole. She's very much craving a maternal figure, is the thing about this character. Yeah. Lily is already having tension with uh, her father, who is, of course, abusive, and they decide to go out one day to the town... They being uh, she and, and Rosaline. Yeah, she and Rosaline, because Rosaline is going to register her name to vote um, because the Civil Rights right. Act just passed and she's able to. And on the way, they are harassed. Uh, well, Rosaline, I guess, in particular, is harassed by a group of uh, white supremacists who insult her and call her slurs. And uh, Rosaline basically, like, bites back at them and which triggers a fight which triggers a fight and she ends up getting hurt very badly but uh refuses to apologize which lily doesn't understand which i mean i'm trying to be we'll talk about that we'll talk about that let's not editorialize too much for now Uh, but but later that night after fearing that uh rosaline will be killed 
um, by... Because because what happens is, uh, after the scuffle breaks out, uh, Rosaline is, of course, uh, the one arrested and charged with disturbing the peace for this incident. Uh, even though she's clearly the victim of the situation, the police, of course, do not take her side. And she's uh, further brutalized by the cops as well. Yes, and Lily fe- fears for Rosaline's life, so she... Uh basically reaching the end of her rope with her abusive father as well, decides to break Rosaline out of, uh, well, at that point, she's in the hospital because she's been beaten very badly again by the white men. Right, but she is she is going to, yeah, um, she is have in to custody. go to court. And, she is in police custody still. Yeah, and so um, Lily breaks her out of the hospital and out of custody, and they, uh, they just keep running to Tiburon, which is the fictional town in South Carolina. The thing is that um, Lily has some keepsakes of her dead mother's. Yeah. Uh, and among those keepsakes is uh, an item which is uh, intriguing to her because it's a uh, it's a little picture of um, the Virgin Mary, uh, except she's depicted here as a black woman, which is something that Lily has never seen. So that's kind of intriguing. And on the back... Uh, it has, I believe, a date and the words uh, Tiburon uh, SC. So she knows that this is this is like a town and it's the only really she has to go on. And she's 14 coming up with a harebrained scheme. She thinks there's maybe some connection to her mother here and just decides that they're going to go to Tiburon. Um, Rosaline does call her out on this plan not really being a plan. But at this point, she's already kind of stuck in the situation. Uh, she's now a fugitive. So they end up uh, going through with it and uh, hitchhiking to uh, Tiburon. Um, they uh, they get a ride from, I think, I think it was a, a black trucker who pick, stops for them and picks them up. Yeah, I think so. And they eventually come to, like, a stop to eat. And some of the honey for sale is... Uh, yeah, they're at, like, a general store. Yeah, is depicting the um, the Black Madonna, the same picture that, that Lily has. And she becomes intrigued and she finds out where the honey comes from. And so that l- leads her to the house with the Calendar Sisters. And there right. are... She's, she basically asks about it and is told, like, oh, there's these sisters who make this honey and uh, they they live in this crazy pink house. Um, you know, they're, they're described as these real eccentrics. But she's, uh, she's excited, still thinks this is a lead, and decides to go to the house in hopes that maybe this connects to her mother. So they go to the house, uh... With the Calendar Sisters, and they're called the Calendar Sisters because they're named August, May, and June. And apparently there used to be an April 2, but, uh, and we find this out a little later, but uh, uh, May is, um, May was, May and April were twins, and uh, April became severely depressed and ended up killing herself. And May was left traumatized from this, and she's, like, severely mentally ill and disabled to the point where, when she hears, um... She... she comes across like she has pretty, like, severe, uh, PTSD, yeah, from, um, from this event. Uh, the way her disorder is, uh, portrayed is, uh, a little confusing, um... Yeah, the way they describe it in the fic is... She is unable to distinguish between the suffering of others and the suffering of her own, which is confusing in the first place because that's kind of how empathy works to begin with. Uh, yeah, it's it's also kind of kind of a weird 
a weird one. I don't want to. I don't want to editorialize too much here, but I. I will just say like that's not like a typical trauma response is to become like uh, hyper empathetic. Yeah, I, I mean, know. there are definitely um, problems with this, but but uh, it's it's a little strange. But we'll get back to it. She has um, PTSD, uh, pretty severely, and she would uh be, uh, she is very clearly disabled. Um, but. Yeah, um, so, so, yeah, we have the Calendar Sisters, uh, May, June, and, and August. There's no July, because fuck that month, I guess. Yeah. Uh, no, um, I, I actually like the little joke in, in there about how, um, Lily imagined that, uh, Rosaline would become one of the Calendar Sisters and change her name to July. I thought that was funny, actually. But anyway, anyway, back to, back to the- <laughs> I, I, I forgot about that, but that Back is to good. the summary. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, that's May- uh, and, uh, August is the oldest, and she serves as the, well, I guess they're technically all mother fig- figures, but she's the other they main mother, mother figure figures. besides Rosaline, and she's kind of different than Rosaline is, because Rosaline is more no-nonsense, August yeah. is more, like, uh, motherly and gentle. I guess Rosaline's uh, right. very motherly, too, but, uh... August is, is sort of more like the, the wise woman trope, though, too. Yeah, um... Um, and then there's and then we have June, who's um, the big meanie. <laughs> yeah, June is more uh, suspicious, uh, I guess, towards Lily, and acts kind of standoffish with her at first. Though the ice eventually starts to melt. Um, and the thing is, her her reaction is well. Okay, I'll stop editorializing. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we can't keep editorializing. We have to get through the summary. We're okay, gonna have so right, much but, to come back uh, to uh, later. Yeah, she is um suspicious uh because Lily is a suspicious white girl who's clearly lying about her reasons that she's there. Uh, that's for- editorializing. Come on. Uh, so Lily uh and Rosaline start staying with the Calendar Sisters. Rosaline working in the house and Lily helping with uh the honey. And, uh, August... They also, uh, this is important, um, Lily sells the Calendar Sisters a story to explain, um, why she is with Rosaline and why they are there. Yes, she is not completely honest with them. She does say that we have nowhere to go, but, uh... She invents the rest of their backstory. Yeah, she says that, well, we just need my aunt to send me money and then we'll be on our way, um... Right, she acts as though they're they're just passing through and uh, stops really here randomly. Right, she she kind of just starts lying off the cuff because she's been lying all through the sequence. Yeah, um, um and uh, August and June are pretty uh, do do see through this, uh, but they let her stay anyway, and it's not really clear why at first. Um, June is in particular very suspicious. Uh, in, in of uh. Come on, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Okay, I have a lot okay. to say about this too, but I don't know. I, I would say uh, June is framed as being more mean for being suspicious of Lily. Yes, uh, August's suspicion is framed as more like um, understanding. A- August clearly knows that something is up, but is not going to ask questions. Uh, all right, so. Lily uh, meets Zach, August's godson, who is a black boy. Uh, who, uh, close to her own age, right? Yeah, close to her own age. And they develop a little bit of a romantic relationship. Right. Uh, which is also a, a new thing for her because she'd never really contemplated the possibility of uh, her winding up attracted to a black boy. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is uh, very drawn to him and they do uh, get along quite well. Uh, she is really enjoying uh, living with the Calendar Sisters. Uh, she clearly looks up to all of them as... 
as sort of role mothers, uh, role, role models slash uh, mother figures. Uh, one day, her and Zack are out in the town, and they witness a commotion with some white supremacists and some black kids who are Zack's friend. And uh, Zack is kind of assumed to be there with them, I guess, when the commotion occurs. And uh, so Eni won't rat out which one um, uh, basically fought back against the men who were harassing them. Right. So he, he also gets arrested, even though he wasn't really involved in uh what was going on beyond uh, knowing the kids who were targeted. Yeah, and May is, uh, May finds out about this. They're, they're kind of trying to keep the news from her because uh, she's easily upset. And it is, of course, like upsetting and scary. They don't know what's going on with him when he will be released, if he will be released. Yeah. Um, it's, of, of course, like a very scary, intense situation. And she finds out and um, is very upset and walks out of the house, and, and no one stops her because uh, May has a regular thing where she uh, she has what's it what's it called like a prayer wall a or wailing something? wall a wailing wall uh, which uh, what she does is she takes uh, like sad newspaper stories and cuts them out and like wraps them around rocks and places them in this like um, uh, stone wall that's been uh, built on their property. Yeah, and for some reason they let her go uh, by right, herself. Uh, and then... But I think I think what they're kind of assuming is that she's going to go out to her wall because she's out there a yeah. lot. That's like sort of her, her meditative activity that she does to go calm down. So they let her go, but when she doesn't come back, they start to get worried. They go out looking for her and uh, find that she has uh, drowned herself. Yes, um, and then uh, they f- find her suicide note... That says, it's my time to die and it's your time to live. Don't mess it up. We'll talk about this yeah. later. Um, but Zach is freed from jail with no charges. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. All right. So, um, and... He, get, he gets out of jail, but it, it was too late. Uh, May is dead. Um... And then May is buried and they have a funeral. And it's very, like, celebrating her life instead of... Yes. It's a different type of mourning than Lily is... Uh, the Calendar sisters have, have kind of their own uh, spirituality, I guess. Um, it's uh, Christianity-based, uh, for sure, but more like, uh, sort, sort of like a, I guess like a hippie take on it a bit. Um, uh, we, can, we can talk about this more when we go over the book in detail, but uh, they have kind of their own, um, uh, their own customs and holidays and rights that they've uh developed as a group they have some friends um who also come and uh like celebrate with them at these uh events um they have a name for their group i'm forgetting but they're also like like they have their own uh sect of religion that's uh they worship the black mary as a saint essentially yes um uh, which we'll, we'll uh, talk about that more later. We'll get anyway. To it. May's dead. Who cares? Life goes back to normal, and uh, event- eventually, um, Lily reveals to August what happened, uh, and uh, August explains to her that she knew all along who Lily was, and uh, she knew her mother, and uh, her mother. Uh, oh, left her father. There's something. There's something very important. We. Uh... We forgot to mention. 
So backing up to before uh, Lily runs away from home, she has a fight with her dad um, where she basically uh, says that, you know, I, I wish mom were here. This this never would have happened if, oh, yeah. if mom was here or something, something to that effect. And he says, like, Lily, your mother tried to leave you. Yeah. Uh, and explains that... Uh, she had left them, and during the co- the confrontation where uh, she was killed... He told her that she had only come back to get her things, but that she had left. Right. And Lily assumes that her dad uh, is lying about this, um, that he said this on purpose to be hurtful, but it reads very much like she's trying to convince herself that uh, this could not be true. Uh, yes. She asks other characters about it and is clearly seeking confirmation that her dad was just being a meanie when he he said this uh but uh skipping back to where we were in the summary uh when she talks to august about this august reveals that she that her uh that she was her mother's nanny and helped raise her and that Mm -hmm. uh she knew what uh and uh, that she knew lily is a baby right when but uh, does confirm that her mother indeed did leave her. She left uh, T-Ray without Lily uh, when she became depressed for whatever reason. And she was she uh, ran away and went to the Calendar sister's home. And Lily is very distressed by this because her fears are confirmed. And August kind of has to explain to her, like, your mother wasn't wasn't herself. And, like... Uh, right, she, she needed to uh, get away from your dad. Yeah, there's this whole thing. And... And there, and and it is kind of ambiguous. It's like, did her mother do the right thing, or didn't she? How much did she love Lily? Right. You know? But Lily's uh, very upset now because she she'd been idolizing her her mother as this uh, perfect uh, figure, and now has to contend with uh, the fact that her mother may have made choices that she uh, doesn't agree with, mm-hmm. um, and may not have uh, always prioritized her. And that her dad may not have been lying to her about everything. Yeah. And so she, uh, she she lives with the Calendar Sisters longer. She starts to, I guess, process her own grief uh, that she has to, and she has to view her mother through a different lens now. Because, so that's a whole thing. Um, right. But the climax of the story is basically uh, T-Ray finds Lily and he tries to take uh, her home, flies into a rampage. It's her own fault, too, because she she called him at one point yeah. when uh, being, quote unquote, on the run. Yeah, so um, that's the kind of irrational decision that makes sense for a 14-year-old. For a 14-year-old, yeah. Not Keith. But so he's anyway. he's able to track her down and he comes to get her. Mm-hmm. Uh, to which um there's a confrontation and august yes. kind of reverse psychologies him into dis- uh, into letting lily stay and... yeah essentially uh argues that she's in a good environment and um he, she doesn't um want to hurt t-ray's pride because that will make him want to take lily back so he's like oh she's my apprentice or something like that right right she's, she uh, works she, for me she, she plays it off like this is this is just a business arrangement, and uh, surely it's something he can understand is a rational decision. Like she yeah. she frames it in that way so that he won't um, uh, he won't take it as uh, a knock on his parenting ability or uh, that his daughter is being stolen away from him or or something like that. 
yeah, because because he he seems to have this view of his daughter as being more trouble than she's worth. Um, he acquiesces and um, and drives away. But uh, before he drives away, Lily asks if uh, she really did kill her mother, and he says, "Yes, you did, uh, but you didn't mean to." Yeah. And that's what happened. And and then drives away. Right, and then the book wraps up with. Um, it it actually wraps up with her saying, and I think we can talk about this now because we're done. It actually wraps up with her saying, like, maybe T-Ray was lying and maybe I really did kill my mother. But you know what? I don't think it really matters either way. My mother's dead and she loved me. Maybe she didn't always make the right decisions, but that's kind of where it ends. And I, I told you, I really like the ambiguity of that. And then you said, well, I have something to tell you. And then you yes. read me... <laughs> Sue Monk Kids uh, author-like questions where she confirms that, yes, objectively, the thing that did happen is that Lily accidentally killed her mother by discharging the gun, which ruins it. (laughs) Oh, God. We need to talk about this. We need to, um, we need to back up to, uh, how that confrontation is initially described because, uh, Lily describes it and it's her memory of being, like, four, uh, and... Also, you know, she's only 14, uh, looking back on this, so she doesn't quite grasp what's going on, but it's it's pretty clear to the reader that, um, her mother is looking to leave her father. Uh, she's packing a suitcase, uh, and Lily, uh, is there, and she's hiding in the closet, uh, watching this happen. Uh, there's a confrontation, uh, between her parents. Her dad has a gun, there's a fight over over the gun. It winds up on the floor near her. She picks it up, and at this point, her memory is too fragmented for her to recall exactly what happened. But there is a gunshot at some point, uh, which she is unclear. Like, in her memory, she can't tell if the gunshot happened when she p- picked the weapon up or afterwards. Because it's all just a blur at this point. So it's kind of ambiguous throughout the novel. It's like, you kind of want to think that T-Ray was the one who killed their mother, but... Okay, because then the next time it comes up is when we have the memory of... uh, This is when Lily is a bit older. She's about about to start school. And um, her dad uh, walks up to her and... uh, uh, basically in order to have a very serious conversation and... Uh, which is uh, not normal for him because he's usually right. just yelling and uh and Yeah, he usually doesn't orders. engage with with her much except to order her around or, or yell at her, but he comes up to her um, to uh, get the story straight on how her mother died prior to her starting school. Like, that is that is how it's framed. Because he assumes that uh, other kids might talk or ask her about what happened. Right, um, and he starts basically trying to feed her the story, and she, you know, being like six and not really getting what's going on, she says, I remember, which takes him by surprise, and he starts prying for how much, uh, she remembers and is, uh, clearly kind of aghast, uh, when she remembers details like the gun. Which, I like how it can read multiple ways, because it can read, like... Maybe he he uh, is, like, mad because he thinks that she didn't remember anything and he's the, actually the one who killed her. Or maybe he does have some affection for Lily and doesn't want her to remember her mother dead. 
So Right. Like maybe maybe he's worried that she actually remembers the moment of accidentally killing her mother. Or maybe he's upset that uh, she remembers too much to go along with whatever story he was going to feed her. Yeah. On an initial read, to me, it seemed like clear-cut example of the latter because he's already started feeding her the story before questioning what she remembers. Yeah. Um, and the story he starts trying to feed her is much more sanitized than what he eventually has to go with, which was that there was an argument... Uh, the gun was on the floor, uh, she picked it up, up, and it just went off in her hand. Uh, he is clear to emphasize to her that it's, it's not her fault, it just happened, uh, that, that it was no one's fault, and, uh, he kind of has her, like, repeat it back to him, like, he's clearly coaching her on the story, and so to me, on an initial read, uh, I thought this was was really great and sinister because Lily does not realize what is going on either in the moment or reflecting back on this as a 14-year-old. She doesn't see that her dad is coaching her and that there was a specific version of the story that he wanted her to be telling, uh, which is clearly not exactly the truth because the version um, that he has her go with amidst the part where um, her mother was packing to leave and... And that's, they were fighting. This is the most fascinating part of the story to us and the closest to being, like, really good. So if you're you're waiting with bated breath for us to tear into this book, don't worry, it's coming. Um, Yeah, um, because, like, uh, this is is really interesting uh, when it's it's setting up. It really looks like uh, T-Ray killed Lily's mother and uh, she is unaware... And has been blaming herself all this time, perhaps kind of thinking like she's she's bad for having done this. There's something wrong with her, etc. Like when it was her dad's doing all along, and you're just kind of as a reader waiting for her to have that realization and figure that out. And it seems like throughout the book that she's maybe getting closer and closer to it because as she starts to, um, uh, you know, she's she's working very hard to convince herself that her dad had to be lying about her mother leaving. And as she gets uh, more and more into uh, telling herself this, uh, you can see her also beginning to question uh, the other stuff her dad told her about her mom, like that she killed her mother. Uh, but that's not where it ends up. Um, instead, T-Ray to the very end uh, says that, yes, she did kill her mother, And it ends on this uh, ambiguous note, like you said, uh, where she's like, maybe I did and maybe I didn't. uh, But in any case, like, I know that um, she loved me and, you know, that relationship was uh, meaningful and what happened does not negate that, etc. Like, she has a positive takeaway from it in the end, despite the ambiguity. But then we have the author just explicitly confirming in, like, an author Q&A, uh, after the fact that her intent was that, uh, Lily did, in fact, kill her mother. Which ruins the whole thing! Yeah, the ambiguity was, like, the strongest part of that. Uh, I could complain about this forever, but we have to move on and complain about the rest of the book. Okay, the bigger thing, there are bigger things to complain about in the story. So many. Where do you want to start? Um, should we talk about Rosaline? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Again, I feel like to... we, we probably kind of have to open there because she's uh, she's the other major character we're, we're introduced to. Yeah. To give a quick caveat, we are both white. So this is the perspective we are coming from while talking about this book. Right. I, I don't want to speak like any sort of authority on what is or isn't racist because I, I'm, I'm very much not. Um, but uh, I just don't have a good feeling about uh, the way Rosaline is written in she's, this story. She's, uh, she's very mammy. Yeah, it's... In a way that, like, she doesn't play completely into the stereotype. But the thing is, is that since this book was written by a white woman, it's not really clear how comfortable we should be with her doing that. Yeah, um... I, I mean, I've definitely seen black people complain that Rosaline is a mammy stereotype. And uh, some people saying that she's not, so... Yeah, I'll be I'll be fair to the character of Rosaline. Um, she has more going on outside of just being that stereotype. Um, I'd say she is decently characterized, and she does... Um, uh, feel like a fairly believable person, except that, like, um, when it, when you're reading the book, it's a little hard to know how to come down on this, or at least it was for me, because, uh, I know that we're, we're viewing her through the lens of Lily, who is a 14-year-old white girl and has a, a particular, like, thing that she's projecting onto Rosaline, yeah. which is, uh, the fantasy of, like, Rosaline being her mom. Uh, which is something she doesn't really fully acknowledge to herself, uh, except sort of at the end of the book. But it's it's very clear that she's uh, slotting Rosaline into this, uh, like, mother figure role uh, without ever giving her, like, the full consideration she would give to her actual mother. Uh, she's, she's taking her for granted, which is something that Rosaline does call her out on. Uh, yes, can we talk at about this scene? At least once or twice. Yes, let's talk about this fucking scene. And we're gonna have to talk about it more. <laughs> Later. Because the scene <laughs> because... <laughs> is in dirty laundry. Yeah. <laughs> which is gonna sound bizarre when we talk about the scene, but, like, trust us, we'll get to it when it happens in dirty laundry. I'm still losing my mind. Okay, so after um, Lily breaks Rosaline out of the hospital, keep in mind, Rosaline is in danger, but she's received treatment for her beatings. Uh... The, the point is, is that she's still in custody. Okay, and I will say, I do want to say about this heist sequence, like, this whole, like, um, it's Lily funny. breaking out Rosaline sequence, it is fun. It's, it's the, it's a nice bit of comic relief. It, it's, it's, like, surprisingly, uh, really, like, funny and entertaining and good character work for Lily because she goes around, um, acting, acting like a, um... I mean, she's kind of a compulsive liar, yeah, she is a compulsive liar, but she's very much playing like uh, the stereotypical like. I don't want to, I don't want anybody to get this wrong. Lily's a great character. <laughs> she's she's fun, and for the most part, I like her character a lot. Yeah. Uh, here she is very much uh, playing into the uh, I guess kind of kind of the idea of like uh, like uh, perfect like uh. 1960s girl um i don't even know how to describe this except that her her dialogue uh can i reads can we bring like up that moment that made us lose from our a minds. 60s movie movie yeah um 
she's very well written in that how like you think uh here's here's how uh, her character is described on wikipedia the 14 year old narrator of the story lily is the daughter and only child of deborah and t ray owens lily loves to read and write that is not a perfect a good representation of her character um she <laughs> yeah. is um Again, she's a compulsive liar, and she's very good at lying, and this is important to her character. She knows how to uh, play adults very well, which uh, makes sense for her as a, a kid who's grown up in an abusive household. Uh, she has this like specific persona that she breaks out, which is very funny, um, because she, she's like clearly borrowing this from like movies, is the way it reads. There are a couple situations where she tries to... Uh, she gets out of situations by referencing that she needs, like, she's on her period or something. Um, <laughs> it's it's there... very funny when she uses this excuse. Yes, and it's very funny because it's all told in her voice. And, yes. and she's like, oh, I'm sorry. I just have female troubles. I tried to look very female and grabbed my <laughs> and grabbed my abdomen or something like that. It was, it's, it's. Oh, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really good. Those are um, the best scenes. It's... It's very funny whenever that happens. So, uh, so we do have this really fun sequence with her, um, uh, like, gaslight gatekeep girl bossing, like, her way about, uh, the situation and, like, incredibly pulling off, like, managing to, to break Rosaline out of the hospital, uh, when she's in police custody, uh, which is, like, surprisingly easy for her, but also, also works because, like, She's a 14-year-old white girl, and yeah. her innocence is presumed in this situation. Uh, once they have gotten out of there and are on the run, uh, Rosaline essentially confronts her um, about, uh, well, how everything she's been pulling has been incredibly, like, stupid and risky. Uh, she's directly risking Rosaline's safety and has no real plan. Yeah, if because in... At this moment, if Rosaline was caught, she would be in way more trouble than she she was. Right. She is in, like, deep shit now, potentially, uh, if, if she's caught. And uh, the fact that she goes this whole story without being caught is, like, kind of crazy uh, and is ultimately just hand-waved as, like, um, oh, the, the newspaper didn't even report on it. Like, um... I don't think that was too much of an issue because I can't rem- like there wasn't a lot of ways you could track people down. Uh, yeah, it's just it's then. just kind of like um, it's it's clearly just like this plot thread is dropped for the narrative convenience of having everything wrap up neatly at the end. Here's the thing, and that's that brings us to the main problem of the story is that it's a story about a white girl and her found family, but the backdrop is the. The backdrop is the Jim Crow South, and everything is right. done to serve her own like narrative and character means. Right. Uh, I, I, I the, the first um, thing I messaged you after I finished it was the book thief too. <laughs> okay, we should probably explain the book thief comparison. If you haven't read it, I'm obviously not going to go into a, a full synopsis here, but um, the the very basic gist is that it is uh, set um, in World War Two Germany. And the main character is, uh, is like, a, a white Gentile. And, um, so the, uh, World War II and the Holocaust is used as the backdrop, um, for a story about a character who is not being directly impacted. And it's not that, like, that kind of story can't be told, but it is, it's framed as and marketed as a story 
about the Holocaust and World War II, but there's only it's... one Jewish character in the story. <laughs> uh, he also spends, like, the majority of his time in the story uh, being so sick, he's, he's, like, on the verge of death, so he's really more treated as a narrative device because, like, it would be bad if he died in their house. Yeah. Uh, so, so, like, that's, that's what we mean. It's, like, it's using, um, the suffering of other people as the backdrop, um, to tie into the theme of suffering because the main character is in a predicament that's unrelated. So, like, here, the setting being the Jim Crow South and, like, all this tension around the civil rights movement kicking off, um is used to tie back into the, like, um, abuse and found family themes, uh, for Lily's personal narrative, because the story is about her, so it's effectively just, um, taken this topic of, like, racism, uh, specifically, like, anti-black racism, and made it all about a white girl, which is just gonna leave, like, a bad taste in... I think anyone's mouth, honestly, like, this is gross. It's using, like, the trauma of black people to fuel this narrative about a white girl. And there were things that happen in the story that could have been... Do you want to talk about May, or do you think it's too early? (laughs) Okay, uh, I was about to kind of bring up May because the thing I was going to say is, like, um... I think my biggest problem with it is that Lily's suffering is the only uh, suffering in the story that really matters. Uh, Rosaline is put in in quite a fucking predicament by by Lily uh, near the beginning of the book and is subject to like intense uh, violence uh, that would certainly be traumatic uh, for her. But none of her trauma is focused on. Uh, this is not a story about her healing. Which, to some extent, makes sense, because the because this is a story told from the perspective of a 14-year-old white girl, but... Right, but that's not, uh, that's not portrayed through any critical lens. Yes, exactly. Uh, there's no point being made about how Lily is ignoring the suffering of others because she's 14 and self-centered and her, like, white privilege is blinding her from seeing the effect of like the political climate yeah on exactly. the black characters in the story which that is a recurring thing by the way is that like uh, the black characters in the story are of course affected by like what's going on in the world around them and lily is like she she doesn't get it and often um criticizes their reaction internally uh, and it's, like, it's criticisms that make sense for her to have as, like, a 14-year-old white girl who does not grasp the nuances here. Like, she's thinking things that make sense for her character, but she's never called out on it. And that's what happens here in this scene, because when, uh, Rosaline confronts her on the recklessness of her plan and how she's just gotten them both, but especially Rosaline in, like, incredibly deep shit. And she says, oh, I'm just a black woman you can save. It's like, oh... Right, and she she calls Lily out on having a, like a white safe a white savior complex. Yeah, which is a completely justified criticism. And I was honestly like, when she said this, I was so pleasantly surprised. I was like, I was not expecting the book to call out Lily for having done that. Uh, but then Lily takes offense. Uh, and basically fires back at Rosaline is like, fine, then I won't help you. Then you're on your own. And, uh, runs off through the woods, um, 
is like very upset and eventually um she she comes to like the water uh, there's there's a stream or something and rosaline is uh bathing naked uh in the water uh and lily ends up uh stripping down and getting into the water as well and this this kind of breaks the ice uh, between the two of them and they make up and just move on from it which I can I can understand like Rosaline um letting it rest in this moment because it's like okay Lily is 14 yeah of she's she's behaving like emotionally and impulsively and Rosaline like even though she did call out Lily for justified reasons here like Lily is clearly someone she cares about a lot yeah. she's she's known her since she she was very little um and has been in this like surrogate mother role to her and uh recognizes that and yeah, it's, chooses it's... to comfort her here which like that makes sense and all but then this this issue is completely dropped and never comes up again yeah i think it would be interesting if we got to see a little bit of rosaline's perspective as as like yeah this this it's easy to see how in the moment rosaline could be thinking like okay she's she's really upset uh we are like currently on the run and we we have to work together i can't just leave her to fend for herself she's 14 like yeah. we have to we have to make up and uh it's not the time to have like a serious discussion about this because uh the thing is that lily doesn't get what she's done yeah she doesn't wrong she and doesn't if know rosaline any were to uh, not that this is an excuse for her behavior but she clearly does not understand yeah. And Rosaline is going to have to explain this to her if they're going to have, like, a conversation. That's, like, a big, yeah. like, sit-down discussion. But then that And it's emotionally happen. exhausting to have to explain, like, uh, the oppression you face to someone who's, like, part of the oppressor group. Like, that's that's yeah. a whole thing you have to do. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not the time. I get it why she drops it here. But it just never comes up again. So, ultimately, like, Lily faces no narrative consequences uh for her treatment of rosaline here it all works out fine so i guess it was fine they hug and make up it's fine yeah she also um hugs and makes up with june too who is um the only person at the household who doesn't really like lily that much because she's a suspicious white girl actually let me bring up my notes okay so yeah as you were saying about june and i i i didn't really want to stop you from editorializing because, like, I completely agree with you, but I also had so much to say about this that I didn't want us to get into the weeds immediately. June is completely justified in her suspicions about Lily because Lily is this, like, 14-year-old white girl who shows up mysteriously and is lying her ass off. One more thing about Rosaline since we kind of finished our yeah. discussion of her for now. Uh, so Rosaline is a fat black woman and the author will never let us forget this. You could have just said that it once and I would have remembered, but it's always, she is constantly described as such. It is never framed in a bad way, but there is overabundance of like description of how, how large her body parts are. Like, oh, the bed was dipping so low because she was so fat. Oh, her bra looked like it could sling boulders. Like, uh, right. I get it's it. Just, it's it's, it's kind just all of, the time. It's very objectifying, honestly. Uh, and, like, when it's particularly her breasts and thighs, and, like, none of the skinny characters are described that way. None of the skinny characters are described as, like, oh, their hands were so small. Or, it's like. Specifically emphasizing her maternal attributes, yeah. too. Like, mm. that's a part of it. Like, that's that's the breasts and, th- and thighs thing. And that, t- that ties in, in the scene where they're. 
where they're bathing because this is where Lily is kind of like looking looking at their bodies and comparing like how different they are. Like she's she's the skinny little white girl and uh, Rosaline is you know a much bigger older woman um, who's also like a, a very dark skinned black woman that's brought up multiple times uh, about her. And it's like it's not that it doesn't make sense for the character. Like I I get why like. It makes sense for Lily to be, like, um, constantly noticing and comparing them because she is, like, again, like, a 14-year-old white girl uh, who, to some extent, is treating black people as a curiosity, which, like, given the setting, again, this is the Jim Crow South, like, that that makes sense. That's not surprising. She's She's also hitting puberty, so she's at an age where she's noticing bodies more because hers is changing. I'm not saying that it doesn't make sense, but it is uncomfortable and it's constant. Um, it's pretty much every single scene with Rosaline and it really detracts from the like reading experience in this book. It's like every time Rosaline enters the scene, I'm just like, my hackles are up and I'm just dreading it. So June is hesitant to accept Lily because Lily is a suspicious white girl and they live in the Jim Crow South. Right, I think it actually took me a, a moment to realize that the book is, like, seriously expecting us to believe that June is this big meanie, because I was just, like, completely, like, yeah, she's right. No, literally, your interpretation was so much, like, le- le- uh, right away I saw what they were doing, but you didn't, because you were you were trying to give them a, the benefit of the doubt. There's this scene where- I do this too often. <laughs> there's this scene where uh, the Calendar sisters and their friends are worshipping uh, the Black Madonna, and- uh, Lily is there and she gets very into it, very into the music, and she actually reaches out and feels herself led to, uh, she is moved to touch the, uh, the icon, the figure of the Black Madonna, and Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess we should explain really briefly about this. It's a, it's a carved figurehead from a ship, uh, they have some kind of lore about it, um, that it was, uh, discovered, um, by, uh, was it was it like uh, their ancestors or just I can't remember how this how specific they were about it. It was it was discovered by um, by like a former slave. Yeah, by a former slave, and um, because it's you know a depiction of the Madonna as a black woman. This was this was striking and inspirational, and yeah, um, and it, it's been passed down. It's very important to them. And uh, when Lily right, is it's about the centerpiece to... of all their like religious ceremonies, yes. And when Lily reaches out to touch it, which is something they've all they've all done, but uh, this has previously been like uh, you know closed religious ceremonies. The only people who have uh, partaken in this previously have been black. Yeah, uh, because this is this is obviously like um, centering black people. This this is what this is all about: is their experience um, as black people in the U.S. Um, so th- this is the first time a white person has been invited into this. Yes, and and so Lily reaches out to touch it. She feels very moved, and June all of a sudden stops playing, and Lily re- Lily kind of snaps out of it and realizes, oh wait, I'm not actually a part of this. And like the, and she she wonders like, oh, I don't actually belong. And my right. interpretation was that oh, 
June is supposed to be the bad character because she doesn't right. like immediately Who's standing in the way of Lily having this perfect new family. Yeah, and it's like and and you were like, "Oh, I interpret it as June was just surprised and was wondering if they were going to let the white girl touch it." But like that's Yeah, my not... my interpretation was that she pauses like, uh, "Are we really letting this happen?" Which, to me, like, uh, looking at it from her perspective, that seems like a completely understandable reaction to them doing something they have never, like, done before. But the way I know that it's written is that June did it deliberately to be like, I'm mean, and I'm going to make Lily (laughs) feel sad. And it's like, you can't do that. But I just, because I was reading that scene, like, already having that question, are they gonna let her fully participate? Mm, Yeah. Uh, Because... You know, this is a big moment. Uh, is she going to be 100% included? Or is that going to be weird? Because this has previously been, like, a closed thing. Yeah, and, like, either way would would have been, like, acceptable and understandable. Like, even if they never let her fully participate. It's like, she's not black. She can't have the same experiences, religious or otherwise. Right. It, it would be fine. It could be even like something they talked about later like uh hey it's it's fine for you to participate to this extent but this part of it is like uh meaningful for us and wouldn't be for you or you know something like that yeah uh it's it's something that i could i could completely uh see being like forever off limits for her and that being completely justified uh but instead it's it's not like the intent is that june is this big meanie who's stopping her from fully participating and becoming a part of this like found family unit yeah and so like so june's reaction is completely justified right which is why i'm giving it benefit of the doubt the whole time and i can tell that like narratively lily thinks she's a meanie but because we're first person from her perspective i don't know like when i'm first reading benefit of the doubt i don't know if that's the author saying that oh june is mean but because we're never given anything Like, Lily never looks back on June's early behavior and thinks, like, oh, yeah, well, she kind of had a point to, like, not trust me. Yeah. There's never that moment, which, again, would be completely justified, because even setting, like, the racial dynamics aside, Lily did meet them and immediately start lying her pants off. Um, And, uh, you know, to clarify, you did say she's a good liar, and she is a good liar um, in that she's she's good at convincing... um, adults uh that she's she's not up to anything but uh her specific brand of lying um works best on white adults because it's banking on this perception of her like as as inherently innocent because she's a young white girl yeah uh she's not going to get that same reaction um from black adults and she doesn't and she doesn't they see right through her. It's very apparent. Uh, she keeps lying in that scene, um, I think knowing that they're not buying it, but at this point she's, like, in too deep, and she's she's pretty compulsive with the lying. But uh, even though June's, like, distrust of her is completely justified, uh, we are meant to think that she's, uh, she's being very mean for it. Uh, should we talk about May? I just want to talk about real quick how the thing with June yeah. wraps up is um, uh, they have sprinkler fun. And then June is like, sorry, I was so mean to you. And Lily's like, that's okay. That's that is how it wraps up. This is another scene that uh, basically <laughs> happens in Dirty Laundry. Yeah. But, um, 
But yeah, they have like a, a goofy like breaking the ice moment, um, which that's the point at which it kind of becomes like impossible to ignore that um, we're supposed to read it as June has just been um, mean and cold the whole time and she's finally like softening up. Because if she's justified in her distrust, if, if we're meant to think that, then there's no reason why like uh, fucking around with the sprinkler would suddenly make Lily trustworthy. Yeah. All right. Let's let's talk about May. Let's talk about May. Uh, May is Ugh. May's not a character. Can I just say <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. May is not a character. May is a plot device. Yeah. Mm. May is here uh, to underline. Th- themes and the story and then die tragically to bring everybody together yeah to die die tragically to make the happy ending not as happy as it otherwise would be although it's pretty happy right uh she's there to add like a bittersweet note to the story but also like her death is the catalyst for um bringing the rest of them closer together um uh, so it's um it's like this tragedy that they have to overcome um her her death is is very like heavily flagged before she she does commit suicide i mean we have the whole backstory with her her twin also committing suicide and how she never really got over it um the thing I wanted to say earlier about the way her disorder is written, but I didn't want to like editorialize too much when we were just doing the summary. Uh, is that, like, it's clearly not working off, um, uh, any, like, it's not grounded in, um, yeah, what any actual trauma does to somebody, yeah. I think we can say pretty definitively that she has PTSD, but everything else is just, like, this isn't really how it manifests. The, uh, the only thing that I can say, uh, makes her PTSD definitive is that she went through severe trauma and now has, like, uh, triggers. Yeah. But apart from that, uh, she doesn't display, uh, a lot of even, even the, like, very stereotypical PTSD behavior of, uh, being, like, uh, paranoid or jumpy or, um... Uh, overly defensive or uh, like she's just a quirky fairy lady uh, right she puts and like socks on the bathtub feet isn't that so quirky oh she doesn't like to kill bugs uh right she's um she's very much infantilized as yeah. a disabled character that's the way she's written which is kind of like doubly uncomfortable um because it's it's also like infantilization of black women uh-huh. stuff she is portrayed as quite childish in a lot of her behaviors she's sort of whimsical in like a sad way i, I will just like i'll just come out and say this like i do have ptsd like i know very well what the symptoms are like and they, and, they can um, vary but they can vary. Uh, I, I, I do know plenty of other people who do have PTSD, um, and there is a lot of variation in symptoms. There are some, like, uh, pretty core symptoms that I, I would say, like, if you have PTSD, like, you will have these symptoms. They will manifest differently from person to person. 
but this is part of the diagnostic criteria and she's not demonstrating any behavior that uh i can point to and say like oh yeah that's definitely ptsd except that she has been through trauma um apart from that she reads more like she's like maybe developmentally disabled yeah that because that's what i was thinking at first that was my initial thought as well was that she was developmentally disabled but it can't be that because it happened when her sister killed herself instead of uh, right We're 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 led to believe that she was like I guess, uh, quote-unquote, normal um, until this traumatic thing happened to her. Um, but she, what she's developed is clearly not, like, typical PTSD. And that's just done to make her this tragic figure. Yeah. Uh, because real PTSD is is messy and doesn't always make you uh, the most sympathetic and, and tragic person in the room. It's not... Um, her character isn't like written to be mentally ill in any way that actually matters or is realistic except for like to fuel the the story and to make her this tragic figure who has to die in order to bring everyone together the other thing um which is particularly uncomfortable with how everything wraps up oh god is that she is well, I don't know if you're thinking of the same thing I'm thinking of, but May is kind of framed as being a burden to the others. They have to be her caretaker. Yeah. Um, and so in that way, there's almost like a, a like sense of relief when she dies. And it's not like people uh, who... <laughs> listen, it's not like when, when, when people are suffering and sick. There isn't some sense of relief that when they die they're not suffering anymore but may isn't terminally terminally ill she's mentally ill and she was trauma is not a death sentence like can i just say that yeah. like they treat her like she is this lost cause this is literally the ending of of the medium where it says yeah. like if you are if you are depressed and mentally ill you should just kill yourself <laughs> it's yeah it's um it's very uncomfortable how this is all treated. And I get it, like, it's the 60s, times were different, like, uh, mental health services were not as accessible, especially not to black women. Like, I get it, she doesn't have the opportunity to seek treatment that, like, someone would today. Uh, however, that doesn't mean that she can't, like, recover over time from the trauma of losing her sister especially being in a supportive caring environment like she is why why is lily able to recover but may isn't ask yourself that right this is a story about recovering from trauma and yet there's a character in this story who we're told just cannot recover from trauma and it's kinder for her to just die and if you think that we're like making this up like how like oh they can't um it can't actually be hinted that it's a good thing and uh, that she uh, dies because she's a burden. Her suicide note literally says, it's my time to die and it's your time to live. And they they read it and they like literally ask the question out loud, do you think it was her time to die? And they just go like, well, I don't know, maybe. Like, what is that if not confirming that yes, maybe this may have been a good thing? Right. Right. They, uh... It's like they uh, they accept that she was correct to commit suicide. Like, that is crazy. You can't do that. 
It's such That's a bizarrely like, fucked thing to put in your book about recovering from trauma. This is like a 13 reasons why level of awful way to do to like depict suicide. Yeah, except it it kind of has like additional awful implications because uh the white protagonist gets to heal from her trauma um but this older black woman cannot. Um it's it's like her her youth and her white privilege are the only things that enable her to recover here. And if if that was like if that was supposed to be the tragic takeaway is that like May never had a chance. Uh that like there could have been a world in which she she could have um been provided the support she needed to get better, but that world doesn't exist yet. And um even though she should have had the same opportunity to heal that Lily did, that she doesn't get that because of the circumstances of her birth, that could have been the takeaway, that could have been the tragedy. It's not. Yeah, it's not. The reason it's not. The reason she dies is also extremely contrived as well. Um, look, uh, look at it this way. Okay, yeah. so uh, May has already had a sister who committed suicide. Um, May is suicidal and depressed. Um, she's kind of constantly being attended and watched by her sisters to the point where, like, well, uh, she has this whole coping method where they put warm water on her whenever she's having, like, an attack. Um, uh, yeah, she also has, like, a song that she hums to herself to calm herself down. Yeah. Um, like, they, uh, there are all these rituals around it. There's also the, um, the wailing wall. Like, that's the other thing, is that, uh, May is constantly engaging with these news stories and, um... I don't think I specified this earlier, but to to be clear, these are these are stories about like tragedies happening to black people in the local community for the most part. Yeah, uh, like she's she's very in tune with what's going on in the world and how hard it is uh, for other people like her. But for some reason, it's this. Um, I've completely forgotten his it's name. It's just I'm Zach, so the go- uh, Zach. August godson. Zach. It, yeah. Okay, it doesn't make any sense why this of all things does it for her because we've literally never seen her interact with Zach. Yes, they don't which like is have like, a scene together, so there's no. This is a very upsetting scenario. Uh, this young, of course it's this upsetting. young boy has yeah. been arrested. He could be hurt or killed in jail. He could. Uh, he will probably be denied a fair trial, even if by some miracle he comes back to them unhurt, which is what happens. Like. This is traumatizing. He won't be the same. And in fact, he isn't after this. This changes him for for completely understandable reasons. And of course, like, May would be upset about this. But why is this the thing that does it? Yeah, it it created kind of a strange situation where, like, I knew she was going to die because um, so many death flags were were thrown up around her. But I didn't expect this to be the moment because again while this is like very scary and tragic um she's engaging with these kinds of scary tragedies all the time and uh there's no particular relationship that she has with zach uh that would lead us to believe that this is like uh distressing to her on a level that is simply too much to bear they could have very easily made it something like she hears about a tragedy that reminds her too much of her sister's death or it, you know, it could be the Zach thing, but we need to see a little bit more, like why this messes her up so badly. Like maybe it's the uncertainty of not knowing, um, and the length of time that this stretches on. But except that she just finds out and immediately kills herself. 
Yeah. It's not like this is hanging over her head for a period of time like it is for everyone else. It doesn't make sense why they let her go to the Wailing Wall alone like that. Um, they wait, like, yeah, they usually keep a pretty close eye on her, yeah. And she's very upset when she leaves. Yeah, they, w- they wait like 20 minutes. I mean, specifically, I think it's observed at like, oh, this time she looked different. They kind of sense what's about to happen before it does. Yeah. Because it's kind of pointed out in the narration, but they still let her go. Which doesn't make uh, sense. It it ties in in a really unfortunate way with the, like, it was her time to die stuff. Like, they they just let her, even though they have a sense that something's really wrong. Here's my fix for for your fucking award-winning book. Um, (laughs) okay, what if... They go to do something to get Zack out of jail, and in the meantime, May finds out about this and kills herself when they're not there. Then that would answer the yeah. question. Right, uh, because because it would be not just that this is all going on. Uh, that would make the situation even more stressful. They could all get in trouble. Yeah. Um, but uh, the fact that no one is there to watch her when they usually keep a pretty close eye on her. Yeah. Um, it would read like she was waiting for the first opportunity, um, which, uh, which would make it way more tragic. Uh, yeah, we can't, we could complain about this forever, but we can't complain about this forever. Um, I think we, we pretty much got it all out of the way. Okay, uh, should we move on? We haven't talked about August yet. I don't have that much to say about her. <laughs> I don't have that much to say about August. Uh, I think we should just say that she is like, um... Uh, you know, the the wise old black lady stereotype. Um, Sumon Kid had a dream about her. <laughs> okay, yeah. We... Sumon Kid was really conflicted about how to end this because she wanted Lily to stay with the Calendar Sisters, uh, but um, she was wondering what, how she'd do that. Like, why would T. Ray let her stay? And I actually think that the reason is pretty well done in the end but here's the thing is that she says i knew that people would get mad at me if i had a happy ending it's not a happy ending may is fucking dead and so is yeah i am looking at this answer right now uh that that she gave um she she says she essentially wrote the novel by the seat of the pants um her initial idea um only went up to the part where Lily springs Rosaline and they run away, but she didn't know where it was going to go from there. She, at this point, hadn't come up with the characters of the Calendar Sisters at all. Uh, they came from, like, uh, she had, like, a um, collage that she created while she was writing this book and pinned ideas to, and one of the things she stuck on that board was a picture of three black women, uh, and she just kind of decided at this point that she was going to have Lily and Rosaline encounter three uh, black women who were beekeepers. At this point, she's trying to figure out how to write the ending. And she knows that, like, T-Ray, like, the way she's written that character, he's not just going to, like, uh, confess to having killed Lily's mom. He's not going to change his ways, um... And this is where she says, uh, and I'll read directly what she says, uh, There was never a possibility in my mind of that happening. I knew from the beginning that Lily was actually the one responsible for her mother's death. It was a tragic thing, but it made her situation, her emotional life, more complex and layered. And it made her journey of healing so much more essential and powerful. 
Which, I want to talk about that in a fucking moment, but, um, <laughs> from there, she talks about how she isn't sure where, um, Lily is going to end up. Is she going to stay with the Calendar sisters, or is she going to go back and live with her dad? And what she says, it's not quite that she thinks people are going to be mad at her, it's more that she had an impression of, like, serious literary novels can't have happy endings. Uh, so she definitely looks on this as an unambiguous happy ending, yeah, which is, uh, no, May is dead. Uh, a, a novel having a relatively, like, bittersweet ending is pretty, like, normal for serious literary novels. That's quite, that's quite standard. I mean, if you're going to do a happy ending in a serious literary novel, it's usually undercut to make it bittersweet in the way that this is, in pretty much the exact way that this is. Like, the situation resolves positively... For most of the characters, but uh, tragedy had to happen along the way uh, to make that happy ending possible. This is like fake bittersweet. It's like bitter and sweet instead of bittersweet, which it should be. I don't know if that makes sense, but... No, but I, I know what you mean, because like, again, uh, May is not a character in her own right. She is a storytelling device. Uh, she is here specifically so that she can die tragically... Um, and, uh, the characters essentially just, like, use her death as a stepping stone. Um, she's, she's just the, the tool that they, they use to achieve their happy ending. Uh, she doesn't matter in her own right as a character in the story. So it can't be truly bittersweet because, uh, she is not someone who we have reason to care about. Her death is an event. That's it. Yeah. Uh, but back to the thing about, like, it, it makes the story so much more tragic and complex and layered that Lily is the one who killed her mother. No, it's the ambiguity that makes that complex and layered. Yeah. If, um, if she unambiguously killed her mother, uh, that could be something that she has to grapple with at the end, but, uh, Lily's takeaway is essentially, like, well, if I did it, I did it. If I dodds it, I dodds it. <laughs> Uh, like okay i want to wrap this up but we still have a couple more things to talk about we do um i think lily and zach's relationship is cute um yes you know uh, you pointed out that there was um there's actually one other part where it comes close to acknowledging like her white privilege and uh her like um perspective on black people because of the culture in which which she was raised and due to her own whiteness is that uh where she, where she's talking with zach and um mm, this scene yeah and he and and uh he's i don't remember exactly but i think he's kind of like right he he points out to her that he he does not have the same opportunities in life yeah and she she, she says like oh well you could always do football and he kind of like snaps back at her like why do white people only think that we're good at football which is like that's true even to this day <laughs> right where um black people are, are are framed as being good at sports and not not good academically and the truth is that he wants uh, to become a lawyer and uh she actually does internally acknowledge uh well you know she doesn't actually but i guess he does call her out for it and uh it it's not clear that she really understands why she's being called out but she does she does roll with it and she encourages him uh, to pursue the lawyer idea. Yeah, and she she's, like, talented at writing stories, so she actually comes up with a whole story about him 
uh, as a lawyer. Yeah, it's 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 cute. It's cute. Um, so I I do like uh, their relationship. They they play off each other well. It's like it's believable. It's it's cute. You see why they would like each other. It's also like I think this is the closest she comes to like some uh, reflection on um, like her uh, like uh, racial bias that she's internalized uh, because she does she does think about like how she had never considered the possibility that she might be attracted to a black boy and like that that that's something she kind of has to i mean she also goes over in her head about how like all her life and all her peers thought that like features that black people had were ugly inherently because they were black and right and she she thinks like they're so wrong like she she has that moment of being like wow i was really wrong to think that before yeah uh but she doesn't and again like this does make sense she's 14 uh she doesn't spin it out into to anything um broader and this doesn't lead her to like question her overall impression of black people uh there's like a couple other moments where she does a little bit of self-examination you know there's one part um where uh she like she overhears june talking about like but she's white why is she staying with us which of course to june means like she's suspicious she could get us in trouble what if she like Maybe she does think that we're inferior. Uh, yeah. Also, just, like, it's going to look weird, uh, to anyone else that we have this white girl living with us. Like, that will make us look suspicious. Um, it will be thought that we're we're taking advantage of her or that she's being coerced or, you know, like, yeah. this could get us in trouble because this is not a typical situation. Yeah, and Lily, of course, not understanding this, uh, being 14 has this like feeling of righteous indignation like how dare they they base this just based off of my skin color which is like uh-huh. a believable reaction to her 14 year old yep. to have especially because she's never ever experienced prejudice in this way before but <laughs> yeah no one no one's ever judged her for her skin color yeah before, but instead so. of wrapping back around to oh this is how black people feel all the time all the time it's it's just kind of just treated as like june is wrong yeah um there are so many moments with this uh, like this with lily because uh she constantly has uh what i would say is like the expected reaction for um uh, someone in her, her like time and place uh with her privilege uh that she would look at things from this perspective you know, at her age especially, that she would not have a nuanced understanding of these issues. Uh, So it's like, it's stuff that's completely believable for her character, but I kept waiting for for her to have, like, a moment of realization, or or even for her to start, like, really beginning to uh, unpack some of her views. But that never really happens. No. Uh, It keeps, like, getting close to that and then backing off mm-hmm. is how it feels because there are there are like repeated moments where she she starts like when she's questioning why she um uh, why she just went along with her friends uh acting like um all black guys were unattractive yeah. you know she she does question that there's another moment where she thinks about like uh the assumption that she's made that she's like inherently smarter because she's white yeah and questions uh, whether or not that that's true. Like, she does have moments of, like, um, uh, 
questioning uh, the biases that she's carrying. Um, and I'm not saying that I expect her to be, like, uh, 100%, like, I have fully, like, unpacked and processed all of my privilege. That would feel, like, way too neat as well. Yeah. Uh, but she doesn't feel like she makes very significant progress. It, it kind of feels like a, a, a Sumunk kid was like, well, I have to address this in some way. And then, like, oh, I've met my quota of, of Lily, like, waxing acknowledgement on <laughs> right that's enough self-reflection for one yeah. day i would think that uh coming to view uh these black women as family as is eventually the case for her i mean she she calls them her mothers by the end of the book mm-hmm. that's explicitly where we end up uh they are maternal figures to her uh, you would think that maybe that would prompt some, like, empathizing and seeing things from their perspective and maybe uh, coming to to realize uh, that the situation for them is, like, uh, massively unfair and uh, <laughs> that they are, they are facing all this, like, systemic uh, prejudice uh, that she will never have to deal with. She doesn't really think about any of that stuff all that much. No. Uh, when I would think, like, this is kind of the perfect opportunity for even someone in her position of privilege at her young age in, like, a deeply racist society to uh, maybe start, like, seriously questioning these things. Like, she is literally, like, uh, living with, being cared for, looking up to these older black women who are living an unconventional lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not leading her to as much questioning as I would expect it to. Uh, can we talk about, like, the found family stuff? I have one thing I said to you earlier about this, and I'm not sure exactly how you read all this stuff, but I kept wanting it to land not on the side of um, the Calendar sisters and Rosaline being mother figures to Lily, but instead uh, them being, like, role models, mentor figures. Because that often is um, at least a possible interpretation of the dynamic. These are these are older women that she looks up to. She hasn't really had like uh, a female role model in her life before. Uh, aside from Rosaline, um, she, she hasn't been viewing that way. Uh, she really does take Rosaline for granted in the story, uh, including like as soon as. Uh, and you know that's another thing they that get she to living with the Calendar Sisters, yeah. Yeah, and you know, you know that's another thing that she begins to reflect on, but then kind of just doesn't go anywhere with it. Like, cause, yeah, cause... because when, when they start all living together, um, she kind of abandons hanging out with Rosaline and is spending all her time with the Calendar Sisters, and Rosaline kind of, like, half-jokingly calls her on it. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, I think on the one, the one hand she gets it is, like, Lily is around these new people who are, like, cool and exciting, and she wants to make friends, um, but at the same time, uh... Rosaline does does feel a little tossed to the side uh and she kind of like lightheartedly brings that up a few times mm-hmm. it's like oh you just want to spend time with all your new friends you got no time for me anymore like um Lily does like to her credit like feel a little guilty about this and she does reflect on it a little bit like oh maybe I have been taking Rosaline for granted a little bit uh, but she doesn't really change her behavior, or uh, yeah, she still ever she like still prefers August in the end, right? And she never talks to Rosaline about it either. Like it's never something they have a real conversation about. Yeah, 
And it's it's something that they could easily discuss and clear up because it's clear like Rosaline is not really mad. I think she's she's like a little a little hurt that uh I mean it's 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 the kind of hurt that's like, well, I can't blame someone for enjoying time with someone else. Right. And Rosaline also like she gets on fine with the calendar sisters too. So it's it's not like she really begrudges Lily like that positive relationship, but it is very much like uh it has kind of been just like the two of them versus Lily's dad for a while. Mm-hmm. And as soon as there are new people like Lily kind of drops her like a hot potato, like that sucks a bit. Yeah. But it's something that if if they had a conversation about it, I feel like could be easily cleared up because Lily could be like, like, sorry, I'm not, I'm not trying to abandon you. Um, I just like, I, I think they're cool and I'm excited to spend time with them. I like learning about beekeeping. Did she ever tell Rosaline that she loved her? Because I think that would be a good thing. It's like, I'm not trying to abandon you. I still love you. She never does. No, but she says it to someone else. She's like, oh, I love Rosaline. But like, could you tell her that? Does she know? Yeah, yeah, you should you should probably tell her that because Rosaline definitely like she does feel taken for granted in the story, yeah. understandably so. Uh she is taken for granted. Um Lily doesn't um really consider the possibility of viewing Rosaline as a true maternal figure until uh she's in the situation of living with the Calendar sisters and then it's kind of like, "Oh, well, you're all my mom." Okay, we need to end this pretty soon but did you want to talk about that thing about how you said uh it wasn't there a scene where it's like uh august is kind of telling lily like sometimes you have to be your own mother like you should be your own role yes. model and then in yes. the end she looks back and she's like wow i have so many mothers like okay well that's not the okay point. which because i really liked the scene with august until it didn't mean anything yeah because the scene is that um, they're talking about uh, their uh, religion, and uh, August pretty directly says to Lily, "Like, you get that this is a metaphor, right? Like, you you get that when we're like uh, praying to Mary, um, we're really kind of like appealing to something within ourselves, uh, to that inner strength, and that's what you really need, like." That's the context in which she says the kind of, like, you need to be your own mom thing. Because Lily is all through the story looking for um, a maternal figure. uh, But her mom is dead and she's never going to get her back. Uh, And August basically says, like, you have to learn to be there for yourself and support yourself through life. Uh Uh-huh. And that's, uh, that's the point of Mary to us. And that's also, like, explaining why, um... Uh, why it's it's the black madonna that is this symbol to them because that's that's a mary that looks like them that's that's someone who they can see themselves in Mm -hmm. as as black women they're relating to this this symbol of this uh this strong black black woman who's literally the mother of god like that's that's something that's very important and meaningful and she has to explain the metaphor to lily because lily is of course approaching it from a different perspective as she's She's used to seeing Mary depicted to look like her. Yeah. And has not looked at it from the perspective that they have. Yes, because she looks at the Black Mary and she thinks that is inherently different from me. I could never see myself in that. And she right. sees it uh, as Black some... Mary to her is a, is, is a curiosity. Oh, I've never seen Mary depicted as Black before. Yeah. Whereas to them, it's like, 
this is a religious figure who looks like me, who I can relate to and project onto. Yeah. And this is this is someone who appeals to my like internal sense of strength. Yeah. Uh, and she has not had that nor felt the need for that uh, in the way that they have. And that's that's why August is explaining this to her and connecting this to her desire for a mother. It's like this is a way that she can relate to this religion in a way similar to how that she uh, to to how they do. Uh, where they're trying to find, like, an inner strength that they have been denied by society, and she is looking for this maternal affection that she has been denied through life circumstance. Yes, throw that all out the window. Throw that all out the window. That doesn't fucking matter. The takeaway of the story is that every black woman in this in this book is Lily's mom now. Yeah. This just sucks. Uh, and, that's, I just... and that's why you said you'd only give it two out of five stars, <laughs> right? Just because of the ending. <laughs> Yes, um, otherwise, I want to say, like, this is a book I'm very conflicted about. Um, I like the writing for the most part. It's a little obnoxiously on the nose at times. I'm willing to give most of that a pass because, uh, Lily is 14 and she is an aspiring writer. Yeah! Uh, who maybe thinks, uh, like, she maybe overvalues her own writing skill a little bit, as, like, precocious 14-year-olds tend to do. Uh-huh. Uh, it's characterful, uh, so I don't really mind it. Uh, she's a good character, the other characters, to the extent that they get to be characters, are mostly pretty good. It's... It, it, the book, like, the pacing is a little weird, but there's some, some very enjoyable sequences. I... Um, I looked up... Uh, yeah? I, I am a big fan of the writing style, actually. I just think it's way too on the nose most of the time. Um, and there... Yeah. This is where the... Like, if you... The, a flaw in this writing is that it's too on the nose. And then the author of Dirty Laundry read it and was like, I want my writing to be like that. And so they did it, but they did it even more on the nose. Even to, like, more on the nose. They can't even have, like, a conversation without, like, narration being like, and this is how this character felt. Yeah, and we have a lot to talk about, uh, about what Dirty Laundry took from Secret Life of Bees, and we'll get into that as we cover Dirty Laundry further. Um, but, uh, for now, it's, it's like the author, um, did not understand why the storytelling method was effective in Secret Life of Bees, um, and what it said about the characters, about Lily in particular, because she narrates, uh, that the story is told in this way. That was just, uh, completely missed, and instead there's just an attempt at aping the writing style. And, like, not understanding why it was written that way. Right, not understanding why it was written that way, and also just not having the chops to pull it off. Like, this is a well-written book, I will say that. Yeah. Uh, the prose is good. Yeah. Um, the characterization, like, uh, there's some very solid character work in here. There are some scenes that I thought were really good, very enjoyable, very fun. It's also just, like, uncomfortable start to finish in how it deals with race. There's everything we've just complained about... And with the way it ends, uh, I'm just not left with a good taste in my mouth finishing this book. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, we which... did we did it pretty succinctly in in like uh, one and a half hours, but I think we did it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think we'll end up talking about this story a lot more as it relates. to We Dirty will Laundry. because there are scenes that are more or less one to one reproduced in Dirty Laundry, it's just instead of, like, uh, Lily and Rosaline, it will be Keith and Lance. Yeah, it's, which, which is insane! 
Why did you read The Secret Life of Bees and think, oh, this should be about Keith and Lance? What the fuck you is know wrong how, with you? You know how when you're a teenager and you uh, you get like a little obsessed with a work of fiction and maybe you have a ship that you're like a little fixated on and uh, you can't stop relating things back to your ship because you've got kind of like a little bit of phantom brain rot going on. Um, and that's the thing that teenagers do, and it's all very normal and fine, where, like, every song you hear on the radio is about your OTP. Uh, doing that to the secret life of bees, and, like, actually following through by writing the fanfic? That is crazy. That is fucking crazy. <laughs> I, I can't believe that they did this. Alright, so we're gonna talk next time about, well, I mean, we'll talk throughout about how how similar uh, this is to The Secret Life of Bees, and like, intentionally We so, will be talking about this for the next few months. And all the wrong ways, but that's basically our impression of The Secret Life of Bees, as it doesn't relate to Dirty Laundry. Yeah. So that's it. That is going to be all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out on Twitter or Tumblr at Literary Demerit. We upload new episodes every Friday. You can find us on Patreon or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks so much to The Birthday Massacre and Metropolis Records for the use of their song Counterpain. You can find them on Bandcamp, Spotify, and Apple Music. And remember... We don't own anything. All credit to the original owners! In that case, the author of The Secret Life of Bees, I'm not really sure how much credit we want to give her. 